This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast from AllComic.com, episode 50. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I am Sid, and this is episode 50 of the Manga Mavericks Podcast. 50 episodes, two years this podcast has been going on. We're halfway to 100 episodes already. Oh my god, thank you guys so much for continuing to listen to this show and supporting us and... Yeah, I mean, it's just amazing. And to celebrate this occasion, we are going to revisit a series we previously talked about. That's right, we are going back to class. The assassination classroom, that is, using Matsu's hit manga that we covered a long time ago, back in episode 18, almost a year and a half ago. The English release by Viz Media has finally concluded, so we thought it would be a perfect a perfect occasion to reread the series and discuss it again. And I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, that ought to be fun. I mean, let's be honest. The last time we talked about Yusei Matsui, it was, I feel like it was mostly an episode about Nero. Yeah, we spent an hour on Nero and only like 20 minutes on Assassination Classroom. So there is a lot more weight in the discussion towards the Nero side. Probably because, you know, it was fresher in my mind because, like, I had just finished reading through for the first time. But now we've both reread the entirety of Assassination Classroom, and I think we're going to have a lot to say about it. So definitely expect a nice full-length discussion on that. Yeah, so that'll be fun. But um, I guess before we get on to that, we, we do have some news to cover. And mm-hmm. um, we're going to start off with our usual monthly book scan list, uh, the May list in particular. Basically, the long and short of it is that My Hero Academia pretty much conquers like half of the manga on this list. Because at number five, we have, uh, we actually have volume one of My Hero Academia at number five on the list. Um, and then just kind of going down the list real quick. Uh, we have volume two at number 11, along with uh, volume 11 at number 12, and uh, with uh, volume three at number 16. So let's see, that's uh, one, two, three, four. That's five, or no, I'm sorry, four, four volumes. You're ignoring that volume 12 ranked number four. Oh, okay. Thank you. I totally so forgot to mention that. there are five volumes yeah. on the list, which is half of the manga in the top 20 this month. Yeah, so uh, My Hero Academia is... I think it's pretty popular. I don't know. Uh, what, what, what's your take on this, Sid? Yes, I mean, it is in another renaissance of popularity. Like, the anime has gotten to some incredibly powerful material in the hideout raid arc where they're rescuing Bakugo and All Might's facing off with All for One, you know? So everyone's super hyped on it. And, of course, coinciding with this is that it recently started airing on Toonami, so this exposed even more people to it, potentially. So we are just seeing, like, more and more people get interested in My Hero Academia and seek out the manga. And so, yeah, I think we're going to see, like, these sales trends continue on forward into the summer and beyond. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll be it'll be really interesting to see uh, to see how how long its popularity really lasts as far as like amongst like Viz's other titles go, along with like you know Tokyo Ghoul and uh, One Punch Man, which. Uh... I I feel like we don't get to see we don't see One Punch Man on these lists very often anymore, which is a shame. But I'm I'm sure that'll probably that'll probably resolve itself once season two finally premieres or mm. whatever. I mean, MHA has been a consistent seller for a while now, but like this resurgence we're seeing of like earlier volumes hitting higher up in the sales is definitely I think because more people are discovering it because mm-hmm. of the discussion of recent material. Oh, yeah. Um, but I guess just to kind of finish off the rest of the list, we have, uh, at number six, we have the official manga anthology of Ruby, 
So there's that. And then at number eight, we have Akira Himikawa's uh, version of uh, Twilight Princess, the Legend of Manga series at uh, uh, volume three in particular. And then we have at number nine, uh, One Piece volume 86, along with uh, Tokyo Ghoul Re volume four, number 10, and volume one of the original Tokyo Ghoul at number 15. So, you know, Tokyo mm-hmm. Ghoul still has its place on the list, obviously. And yeah, I don't think there's much else to discuss with this list in particular. Um, nice again, to see yeah. One Piece on here. It's, it's I feels like it's rare to see it on the book scan, at least rare compared to other series like MHA and Tokyo Ghoul. So I, I always like to see that the newest volume does hit uh, pretty high in the book scan whenever it comes out. That's true. Yeah, but otherwise, yeah, a lot of the usual suspects are on here. So there's that. I'm 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 just I'm just glad to see that My Hero Academia is just is doing well because like mm-hmm. I, like like I've said before, I think it really deserves it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, Viz Media's titles are doing extremely well in general. Yes, yes, definitely. But I guess we'll just move on to some serialization news and um, some some good news in the amongst of uh, certain controversies. In that recently, I mean, unfortunately, you know, we we talked about this last time how uh, Nobuhiro Watsuki returned to Jump Square to basically resume the Hokkaido arc of Aroni Kenshin after the whole uh, child pornography scandal. And uh, you know, we weren't we weren't very happy to see it return so soon. Anyway, we we talked about that a lot on the last episode, but some good news has come out of this in that it seems like, uh, as far as uh, Viz's uh, Digital Shonen Jump has been concerned, um, it looks like, for the time being anyway, that the Hokkaido arc will not be running in the English Viz Shonen Jump. No no real uh, statement from Viz has come out about this, at least it's not as far as I know, but... You know, as as I've been told, it, it's a pretty much a sign that you know, with with Jump Square running uh, the Hokkaido arc, you know, usually uh, it would follow suit in the weekly Viz Shonen Jump, but it hasn't come back yet. And so far, I think that's a good sign that uh, hopefully Viz won't be running it anytime soon. Honestly, I was yeah. I was really afraid that because you know Viz is mostly owned by Shueisha, so it's not out of the realm of possibility to basically just assume, oh well, because they're partly owned by Shueisha they're basically going to strong arm them into running the rest of the Hokkaido arc. But I don't know what's really going on behind the scenes. I can only speculate, but it seems like, you know, uh, Viz is making the right decision and not running Watsuki's work. And Mm -hmm. I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think when all of this was coming to light, you know, they pretty much removed Roroni uh, Roroni Kenshin, at least the the Hokkaido arc section from their website. Yeah, they removed all the free chapters for Kenshin uh, on the website. And also, they have not promoted the release of the Struian one since the announcement. Mm-hmm. So even though those still have been coming out, like, they have not mentioned them at all on the podcast, and I've not seen any adverts for them in new issues of Shonen Jump. Mm-hmm. Because they promote new volume releases in Shonen Jump, but I have not seen those for Kenshin Struian ones. Mm-hmm. So... I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't know how far they're into those, but I mean, I'm, I'm sure they still have a few volumes of those left to go. I don't know. I haven't really been keeping up with them. I believe the latest one was like seven, so they have like two more stream ones to go. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I guess you're already so far into them, you might as well finish those. But I mean, like, good on Viz for not bringing back his work, though. Unfortunately, I've seen, I've seen fans who are. You know, not very happy about this, but whatever. I I don't really care about Kenshin fans at this point. I just kind of try and ignore them. (laughs) Yeah, we got some disappointing comments on our uh, latest YouTube upload about the situation, the segment from the last podcast. Yeah. And yeah, it's just, 
And like I said before, to me, there's like a very clear like stance you should take on this. Like Watsky has not repented and it's not worth supporting his work because of what he did and how supporting his work fueled what he did, which is what's really even more heinous. So on those grounds, I feel morally it's just objectionable to both continue reading and supporting it. So I'm glad that Viz has taken a stand. I would have liked it even more if they had like made a firm announcement stating, no, we are not going to run this because as a company, we do not believe in supporting this author anymore. But, you know, I, I understand there are limits to how far they can go. I mean, I can't really decry an author that still works for Shueisha at the end of the day, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But uh, I guess we could just move on to the next piece of news. Mm-hmm. So we're not going to hopefully bother talking about that Kenshin spinoff anymore. But a lot of other good manga by good mangaka have been getting spinoffs of their work. And recently, One Piece has gotten a slew of new spinoffs. Earlier this month in June, a One Piece spinoff by Yoshikazu Amami called Chin Piece started running in Psycho Jump. And I think this is just like a chibi-ish version of One Piece, basically. And that's not all, because we also got another One Piece spinoff running on Jump Plus that came out on June 18th, which is called Kobiyama, who looks like Kobe, two-piece in a pod, drawn by Nakamaru, which is basically about a middle school student who looks exactly like Kobe, which is a weird premise. It's because it's like, a, it's just a real world setting, but there's just this guy who looks like Kobe there. I don't know if there's oh, what? What? any the, other what? characters. Wait, so, oh, wait, so are you telling me the kid doesn't die and gets reincarnated as Kobe? Like, th- that premise seems to be all the rage lately. <laughs> yeah, they, I wonder why I didn't go that route. But then again, like, I don't know. It's like Kobe's life that interesting for that to happen. I'm not sure. I, I mean, <laughs> as a, as a navy officer, at least I'm sure it is. But I mean, like that would probably require a lot of like supervision but isn't it on Oda's part. Is as Yamcha? <laughs> I mean, no, not nearly. But I mean, you know. So I guess in that sense, Kobe is just not a very interesting character. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this middle school student probably is going to have to go through some struggles of his own because he's starting off looking how like Kobe looked at the start of One Piece. So maybe by the end of the spin-off he'll look like how Kobe looks now. He's gonna he's gonna have a teacher that looks just like Alvida and he's he's gonna he's gonna become like, I don't know, the president of the student council, which is supposed to mirror his uh rise and rank in the as far as the Navy goes, I don't know. It's just funny stuff like that. I don't know. I'm just making a whole yeah. bunch of speculation, but I'm sure it'll be funny. And then the final crossover we're going to talk about is a One Piece crossover with the Fisher's YouTube group, which is this Japanese YouTube channel, which I tried to look into, but it's like, it's not really my thing, but it's basically like the Fishers group is seven people who have different talents and they make like, you know, all sorts of crazy videos. Hmm. Uh, it's like the most viewed YouTube channel in Japan in terms of monthly views. Is it like a vlog channel or do they just no, like... No, it's like a, it's like skit channel. Okay. Like, uh, you know, doing weird things kind of channel. Okay. It sounds like the kind of thing Oda would be into. <laughs> Yeah, so this is this like special. I think it'll just be a one shot. I'm not sure, but this crossover is going to debut in Psycho Jump in the September issue on August 3rd. 
There will also additionally be a shocking important announcement in the 34th issue of Shonen Jump on July 23rd. So we'll see what that'll turn out to be. Yeah, One Piece has just kind of gotten to the point where it's like, every time they announce an announcement of something super important, it's like, what else What else is there at this point? Unless it's like, I'm hoping it's maybe more uh, more news on like the live action One Piece coming, but I mean, I, I kind of doubt it. Um, yeah, I don't know. That'd be cool. But yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see what that ter- uh, ends up being. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> uh, but I guess moving on. So um, recently, Jump has basically announced something new for Bleach, of all things. Um, so, you know, uh, aside from the new live-action uh, Bleach film coming, um, which we'll probably talk about later, um, Bleach is getting two new art books totaling 500 pages. And will be titled Bleach Illustration Collection Jet. Um, so that is really cool. Um, apparently this collection will include over 700 color illustrations drawn over the run, uh, over the manga's run of 15 years. And will also include brand new illustrations, production materials, and, uh, both of these books will be sold together in a hard case. Um, so obviously if you are a fan of Bleach, uh, this is probably worth looking into. Um, you know, as neutral as I kind of am on Bleach nowadays, um, I mean, I would like to reread it at some point just to say, hey, I read all of Bleach. But, um, I mean, I still I still like Kubo's artwork, even um, e- even as far as, like, you know, uh, Bleach's, like, uh, I guess back then current run was uh, concerned. Um, I mean, obviously, like, you know, I've, I've seen I've seen a lot of, like, YouTube videos and people comment on Bleach's run throughout the years, you know, uh, people making comments on how passionate Kubo seemed to be in the beginning in in the beginning of Bleach's run as as far, uh compared to like you know uh later during like the uh what was it a Roncar and uh full bring stuff where it's like oh he doesn't use as many backgrounds oh it's, it's Bleach's art isn't good anymore but it's like I've I've always really liked Kubo's illustrations honestly I just I've I've just always been of the opinion that I think he'd be better off just kind of illust- uh, illustrating instead of, you know, storytelling, honestly. But that's just me. Um, but, but, but I my- mean, it's interesting to note that Kubo prefers his illustrators from later in the series run than he did at the beginning of the series. So hmm, that's like, interesting. I'm sure a lot of fans are nostalgic for like that old for the older initial art style. But Kubo himself prefers his more refined art style from later in the series. Mm, that's really interesting. Um, but I mean, uh, I guess the po- the point I'm trying to get to is that, uh, you know, if, if I were more into Bleach and I had the money on me, um, cause I've, I've, I've heard this is going to be pretty pricey. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I wouldn't mind owning this. Um, and again, I mean, if you're a fan of Bleach, this is, like I said, this is definitely worth looking into. Um, so yeah. yeah. Uh, pre-orders are open until August 20th and then they will be shipped on December 4th. So you got a few weeks to get your orders in. And then I guess to move on for that, we'll talk about, uh, something ending recently, a spin-off ending, and that is the Hoshin Enki Gaiden, which hmm. launched in April and it's basically already ended. Hmm. So it was just like a short-lived thing, and I guess we still don't know like what the synopsis for that was like. But I, I mean, it ended. So hopefully, we might get a one a single standalone volume release, maybe. Uh, but I'd I'd hope so. But 
It was cool that there was like a kind of like a epilogue kind of thing for that series. In addition, let's talk about a new manga that's launching a new spin-off manga. That's Boogie Pop Returns versus Imagining There. This new Boogie Pop manga is debuting on June 27th in the July, in the August issue of monthly comic Dengeki Dayo, drawn by Naoki Koshimizu, who is known for drawing the isolated realization of absolute solitude. And of course, it's based on the Boogie Pop novels and... I'm not really sure like what the specific premise is about, but I guess Boogie Pop's going to be going up against something called the Imaginator. So we'll see what that's like. I hope we get this licensed at some point along with other like Boogie Pop manga and other series and stuff. More Boogie Pop is always cool. Yeah, I really do have to get into Boogie Pop at some point. You really, I think the last time we talked about it, you really got me kind of interested in it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Lots of new spin-offs and new revivals are happening recently, and K-On! is no exception, because there's a new K-On! manga coming this July by the original author Kakafly, coming in the August issue of Manga Time Kirara Magazine on July 9th. And the premise is pretty vague. It's like a new musical movement, the performance begins, the leap this time plays drums, so I think it's basically going to be a spin-off it's going to be like in the same world of Kaon, but it's going to be about a whole new cast who are probably like inherit the like music club of the original series so you got like a picture of the new protagonist who's this girl who plays drums and it's like okay cool so we'll see what comes out of this but Kaon is not the only series that's getting like a new spin-off because kaguya-sama love is war is also getting two spin-off manga wow. this is a series that's been running in young jump since 2014 or so Viz has recently started releasing the manga over here in North America and yeah the, there's going to be two new spin-off series the first is called Kaguya-sama wa Kokurazentai Dojinban or Kaguya-sama Love is War Dojin Edition drawn by Shinta Sakayama which will imagine erotic scenarios that do not occur in the main story hmm. and this will run in Tenari no Young Jump website on June 14th uh, so it's already debuted and it's going to publish new chapters every second and fourth Thursdays every month and then the second spinoff is I Want to Talk with Kaguya by G Street Ida which is a four-panel comedy spinoff about girls who worship the student council without knowing what really goes on in the council. The manga will launch in the 34th issue of Young Jump on July 26th. And both of these spinoffs have to commemorate the 100th chapter of Kaguya-sama, which came out just a few weeks ago. So, wow. pretty cool. Yeah, I'll have to really check that out. Mm-hmm. But uh, we have some. Uh, we 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 at least have uh, uh, one one new thing coming out. Not not a lot of those uh, this time around. But you may you may know um, Kengo Hanazawa, the uh, the author of such uh, such works as uh, I Am a Hero. And uh, it looks like uh, in the 13th issue of Shukaku Khan's Big Comic Superior, uh, it was announced that uh, Hanazawa's new series will be launching in the 16th issue on July 27th. Uh, we don't really know much of anything about this new series just yet, except that the magazine describes it as a girl's story. And I guess we don't have a title for the new series as well. So not much info on this so far. But, uh, you know, if you're a fan of I Am a Hero and you want to check out more of Hanazawa's work, this is something look forward to mm -hmm. very interesting the vague idea that this protagonist does not get no men so this might be like a psychological like romantic kind of romance series or 
something, some exploration of like gender ideas or something. Maybe so, that'd be interesting. Very interesting. But let's talk about some old things that are ending or going back on hiatus in the case of Silver Spoon, which returned for a fourth chapter run in late May, but as of the most recent issue of Shonen Sunday, has gone back on hiatus. Nothing more to say here because this has been Silver Spoon's pattern to run for three or four chapters and go back on hiatus, but hopefully it will return soon enough. The story inches ever so closely to the conclusion, so we will see. Mm. But yeah, I mean, Hunter Hunter fans complain about the 10 chapters... Uh, runs that Takashi does. You know, I, I feel like that's at least preferable to the four chapter runs of Silver Spoon because at least you get a volumes counted out of, uh, out of Hunter Hunter when it comes back. Yeah, four volumes is, is like maybe half a volume at most. Yeah, four chapters. Yeah, so yeah, that, that was really surprising to me because I haven't really, I feel bad. I haven't really kept up with Silver Spoon since the first hiatus, but so I, so I didn't realize this was the pattern. So I was really surprised to hear that, like, oh hey, Silver Spoon's coming back, and it just, it just felt, it felt like so quick, like you know, it was going back on hiatus. So it just kind of felt like, oh, didn't this, didn't this just come back? Yeah, this has happened so many times now that I'm like, okay, so this is the pattern. Well, it's fine, <laughs> but it's like, oh man, it's just so close to the end. <laughs> Well, at least it's not. Hopefully, the next this new hiatus won't go on for too long. Mm, yeah. But now to talk about stuff that is definitely ending, and that is Tokyo Ghoul Re. If there are no delays, the manga's last chapter will run in Young Jump on July fifth. Oh, wow. So it's been a long ride for Tokyo Ghoul, but re is ending who knows if there'll be another tokyo ghoul series after that but for all we know this could be the end of the tokyo ghoul story uh, so maybe yeah that yeah it's gonna it's gonna be weird to have tokyo ghoul just gone but i mean like we said well, last, i mean like we said last episode there, there'll still be volume releases from viz so yeah yeah <laughs> we won't be uh rid of it for a while yet for sure. Uh, but speaking of things that are ending, um, so Barakamon, you may have heard of it. It seems like uh, that series will be ending with the 18th volume coming this December, um, specifically December 12th. So yeah, I, I was I was just uh, this this kind of interests me because um, I had actually just finished all of the anime for Barakamon pretty recently, and um, you know what? I'm I'm a sucker for personally. I'm I'm a sucker for like series that are about um, and adults and children bonding, kind of stuff like um, you know Sweetness and Lightning. I really liked uh, Bunny Drop before all the weird shit i just want to make that very clear <laughs> there's a very clear divide as to where people tell you to stop reading the manga on that one but everything before that i really enjoyed um i don't think the anime covers any of that which is good but yeah i'm, I'm a sucker for like that for that kind of show so uh barakamon was definitely something that you know i was i was sort of like indifferent to at first but like the more time i kind of spent with the characters the more i like really liked it also it just like it's just really funny <laughs> The comedic timing in that show is really good, and yeah, so you know, I, I liked the series enough to where I thought, hey, I'll get into get into the manga at some point. And I was just kind of wondering the other day, like, I wonder how much longer the series will go on. And so I guess I got my answer because uh, again, like I said earlier, uh, it will be ending with the 18th volume this coming December 12th. So I'm hoping maybe I can I can maybe read that at some point. Sid, do you have any thoughts on Barakamon? I watched the first couple episodes of the anime back when it came out, and I enjoyed them well enough. And yeah, I 
could definitely revisit it sometime, read through it, because it was quite a charming series. Mm, yeah, we need to talk about, like, Barakamon and Sweetness and Lightning on the show at some point, because, like, I, I really like both of those, especially Sweetness and Lightning. That was that was one of my favorite anime to come out that year. Hmm. It's just it's just so cute. I I love I, I love cute food manga. So it's just I don't know. I just really liked it. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I I also watched first couple episodes of that, and yeah, quite adorable. Um, but I think that's about it for serialization news. That is true. And so let's talk about some licensing news. Starting off with a update on something that's been going on with a current license, and that is Magical Girl Special Love Asuka being released by Seven Seas. Recently, they've had to replace copies of Volume 2 due to a misprint, which was a missing color page with two pinup illustrations. And while that does not affect the story, the reading experience, it's like, you know, still a mistake, still something, you know, that's supposed to be in there. So the first print of the volumes had a pink logo but corrected printings will have a green logo to distinguish the difference and so you know they've made a post on their website to inform readers how they can receive replacements so you should definitely just contact them if you have a one of the volumes with a misprint and yeah get a new copy and then retailers were asked to destroy or discard of volumes uh, with the misprint you know so they could like stock the correct release so definitely uh, just an update on that so if you are one of those people who have, like, a misprinted copy of that volume, definitely, you know, contact SimCs to get a replacement copy. But moving on, let's talk about uh, digital manga, which seems to be back in business, seems to at least try to make good on their outstanding Kickstarter promises. Starting with Kimigori Orange Road, they have presumably uh, started shipping... The rewards for, like, the earlier tiers of the Kimigori Orange Road campaign, which would be, like, the first volume and some of those, like, smaller rewards. And they're beginning with lower tiers because those will be the easiest ones to ship and also because they have all the materials for those already. You know, mm-hmm. they have acknowledged that they're, the shipping process is going to be slow because they don't have much staff and they aren't in a good financial situation, but they're trying to do good by backers. So that's at least fine. At least like I have a, ch- I have a hope, a glimmer of hope of getting my books. But of course, since I pledged for the all six books, you know, it's, I'm going to have to wait a while for those. Well, uh, I'm hoping like uh, people are actually getting these books and, uh, you know, they continue following through with both this Kickstarter and the other Kickstarters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's it's nice to see that they're actually like making an effort to do good. So I'm happy with that mm-hmm. at least. Yeah, I mean, at least they still have the license to all those series that they are running Kickstarter for. But there are a bunch of license lapses that have been happening recently, and let's start off with the big one. Nozomi Entertainment has lost the license to the Rose of the Versailles anime. It has been taken down from streaming services, and the DVDs are going out of print. So... Right now, I still think you can get it off of Right Stuff, and I think if you get the bundle for both DVDs and you use the promo code Rose of Versailles 2018, you can get it like for a third of the price because the bundle is going for sixty dollars. But if you use that promo code, you'll get it for like twenty dollars. So if you have not gotten those DVDs yet, you should definitely get on that because who knows how many they'll still have in print? Who knows like how many are still going to be in stock? And like how fast it's gonna sell out, but yeah. And who if you want to get it, you better get it 
quickly. And who knows, like, by the time we actually release the episode, like, uh, what, what the situation will be like with those, unfortunately. But I guess we'll have to mm-hmm. see. So, yeah. Rosarus Eyes, I feel, has to get relicensed, has to get licensed rescued. I couldn't imagine it being out of print for too much longer. I would I would think that Discotech could probably license rescue it since it seems like a series they could go for. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's always like a very scary thing when a license lapse happens. And yeah. it's always good to be on the safe side to like get a physical copy of the series just in case like it takes a long time for the series to get license rescued. Or if like when it does get license rescued, the new sets they put out are... A little too pricey. Yeah, exactly. In the case of anything uh, Aniplex releases, certainly. Yeah, like, especially with, like, Gurren Lagann and all that stuff. Uh, Fun fact, I actually got the, um, I got the, uh, what was it, the the complete DVD collection for that, like, right before it went out of print and right before Mm -hmm. Aniplex decided, hey, let's sell the entire series on Blu-ray along with all this extra stuff for how much? Oh, $400. Or I'm sure it's probably more than that. I don't know. I haven't really kept up with that. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, we lucked out with that as well. <laughs> Glad I got it <laughs> when I did. But speaking of Aniplex, uh, this is another situation for you as a Black Butler fan to go and pick up that Funimation release of Black Butler Season 2 as quickly as you can because their license for Black Butler Season 2 is going out of print and the DVDs will go out of print at, by the end of June. So you do not have much time to get that season if you don't already own it and if you want to continue watching it. This of course follows a year after the their license for the first season of Black Butler expired last year. Mm-hmm. So they've lost the rights to both of the original two seasons, but they still have the rights, uh, as far as I know, to uh, Book of Murder, Book of the Atlantic, and Book of Circus. So they have all the newer seasons, but the older seasons, they no longer have the license to. So definitely expect Aniplex to charge exorbitant prices for that when they re-release it. So definitely get the Funimation copies while you can. Yeah, better get your copy of Black Butler Season 2, everybody's favorite season of Black Butler. (laughs) Well, you know, some Black Butler (laughs) diehards have to love it, I'm sure. Mm. And in any case, in more manga-specific news, this is something we've kind of known for a long time, but this has officially made a firm statement about it. They have confirmed they do not have the rights to Shaman King anymore. Mm-hmm. They basically said this on Twitter, like when someone was asking them about it, and they were like, well, sorry, we don't have the rights to that anymore. So this is like the first actual statement we've gotten from them, that like, yes, they do not have the Shaman King license anymore. Mm. Well, I, I guess on one hand, I'm I'm personally happy because that means we'll hopefully get a release of the new Kodansha ver- version of Shaman King. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, on the other hand, I'm you know I'm, I'm sure you know uh, Shaman King fans you know would still have to thank Viz Media for bringing out uh, you know Shaman King and Takei's other works you know in the first place. So there's that. Yeah, hopefully Kodansha re-releases it. But that about does it for licensing news. So now we move on to some industry news. Yeah, so, um, you know, we, we've been talking a lot about uh, piracy on the show lately, what with all these, uh, basically all these strategies and moves to, like, combat, you know, illegal 
uh, manga pirating sites over in Japan and whatnot, and uh, we've gone over those pretty ex- extensively and exhaustingly. But it looks like uh, Shugaku-kan is uh, launching their own anti-piracy campaign. You know, uh, to, to like all twenty-three of their uh, uh, magazines, to be precise. And so uh, there, there's a lot to go over. So essentially, basically, uh, Shugaku-kan is is basically starting this new initiative, or has started this new initiative by the time this episode comes out, uh, called the No piracy and legal website campaign, which seeks to eradicate the use of uh, website uh, websites such as these by basically posting announcements and ads f- uh, for all the company's magazines and digital uh, digital hubs uh, where you can buy their stuff digitally. Basically, the idea that they're going for is that they're, they want to promote their legal options as to where you can actually purchase their magazines and other series and uh, readers can participate in a in, in a movement to you know say no to pirated manga and whatnot so i think this is a good step in the right direction here because you know we, we talked on the show extensively about how like you know us and you know other people in the industry just kind of feel like you know you can you know these companies can do everything they can to you know like take down these websites but like you know so some people kind of have the opinion that like these companies you know while they uh, spend so much money and time, you know, taking down these websites, they don't really like, you know, promote, hey, where can, well, okay, if you don't want me using this, you know, pirate website, like, where else can I get my manga? Well, uh, thankfully, Shogakukan seems to be, you know, uh, moving their best foot forward as far as that goes. So personally, I am, I'm, I'm all for companies, you know, actually promoting their, uh, their legal options. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a good initiative. And Hopefully it produces some good results in educating people about legal manga options and getting them to reject piracy. But I guess just while we're on the topic of piracy, uh, Sid, do you want to talk about the next piece of news right after that? Yeah, I mean, on the subject of piracy, we definitely have seen results of, you know, piracy sites closing, uh, like the closure of piracy sites producing results in terms of increasing sales of original works. Uh, when Manga Mura shut down in April, a lot of manga artists have started to notice an increase of sales of their respective series, and they believe it's because more users are turning to legal means to read manga because of its demise. Some creators that believe this to be the case include Torko of the Kimiwo Shinasenai Tamino Storia series, whose sales of her series have more than doubled after Mangamura came down. The uh, same is the case for Shogo, Shoujo manga creator Hika Mayama, who claims her royalties have increased four to five times, and is very happy that people are reading it, her series even though it isn't free. Uh, light novel author Akinori Satake of Gyaku Seicho Chite Sekai Saikyo said his sales have increased and that individuals argued they weren't buying what they could get for free and the prioritized increased name recognition, but these were just convenient exemptions, and the truth of the matter as evidenced by, you know, this increase in sales. Say another story. Sakuya Amayo of uh, Konohana Kitan commented that official comic websites reach publisher are actually getting more visitors. Yoshi Toshi Abe of Serial Experience Lane fame seemed incredulous uh, when Mitsuro Yuki, another creator for uh, Shonen Onyoji, said this is good news for everyone that's purchased ebooks properly and tank buyers that buy both the electronic and paperback versions of their favorite works. So, yeah, I mean, the closure of Mangamura seems to have already produced some results 
in terms of increasing sales for a lot of different series and a lot of different creators. So, you know, this initiative that Shiraka Khan is, you know, rolling out to take down piracy websites and promote official legal releases, I think it could have a very profound substantial impact so yeah it's very interesting to see like what will come out of this and hopefully it proves very successful Mm -hmm. but now let's move on to some convention speak and let's start with the big one coming up on the horizon anime expo and let's start off by talking about someone we talked about on our last episode, Go Nagai, who is going to be the guest of honor at Anime Expo this year. He is going to appear in a special panel to talk about the world of Cutie Honey Universe, and he will also participate in autograph sessions and contribute items to the AX charity auction. His panel will be Cutie Honey Universe, special panel with Go Nagai. The date will be Saturday, July 7th. It'll run from 12 p.m to 1 p.m. in the JW Marriott Live Programming 2 room, the Platinum Ballroom. So, yeah, I mean, definitely, you know, if you are a Gona Guy fan or, like, if you were really interested in the guy, you definitely gotta attend this panel. Make sure to line up early to get in. I'm definitely excited for it. I hope I can get into it because, yeah, I mean, I'm going to AX this year, so, oh, it's so exciting. Oh, but y- you, gotta, is- you, you gotta talk about your time at AX when you come back uh, from the convention. I, I want to hear all about that. I definitely plan to. Uh, we also have more exciting things to talk about because AX will also host premiere of Attack on Titan Season 3 even before the theatrical release Funimation is doing. They will premiere that on July 8th. And they will host both Yuji Kaiji and Bryce Packingbroke, the voices of Aaron, uh, Japanese and English voices respectively, to attend an event and discuss their experiences. So, yeah, I mean, if you can't wait for the theatrical screening of the season street premiere and you'll be at AX, you can definitely attend that and uh, hear both of uh, Aaron's voice actors uh, talk to each other. Yeah, that's that's got to be weird and interesting. (laughs) Yeah, but what's even more exciting in terms of a world premiere is that Anime Expo is going to host the world premiere of My Hero Academia 2 Heroes, the new My Hero Academia film that Funimation plans to release this fall and is supposed to come out in Japan in August, but attendees at Anime Expo will be able to see it a month early before anyone else. Wow. The film will screen with English subtitles at Anime Expo on July 5th at 12.30pm. Admission is free to all badge holders and will be on a first-come, first-served basis. So, there's going to be an insane line for this. Oh, you yeah. want to line up two hours before the showtime. I'm just going to tell you right now. Uh, that's definitely what I'm going to have to do. I'm even more paranoid that I wouldn't get in just doing that. It might have to be like the minute the convention hall opens, I can like, I get there. <laughs> so, uh, but I, I definitely want to make an effort to see this film. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll even record and act movies about it. So, I'm Ooh. yeah, I want to I want to see this. Ooh, so, I, I'm I, super excited. I like the sound of that. At movies exclusive. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, yeah, this is going to be incredibly exciting. Yeah, unfor- I mean, unfortunately, I, I, I'm nowhere near prepared to, like, 
come to uh, most conventions, uh, you know, let alone AX. But, like, I'm definitely going to be seeing uh, this new My Hero Academia movie in theaters when that when that eventually makes its way to theaters. Because, man, I really want to see this movie. Did you see the, um, the, the new trailer for it? Yeah, I did. Yeah, it, uh... it looks really good. Yeah, I think it looks pretty interesting. Uh, we're going to explore All Might's past a little bit, a relationship with an old friend of his who made his costume. Uh, pretty cool stuff. And yeah, um, I'm really looking forward to it. I think I think I heard uh, somewhere that Class A is supposed to have a, a bit of screen time in this movie. So I'm, I'm kind of interested in seeing how that turns out. Yeah, I mean, as many of them as possible. But mm. I mean, it seems definitely like the the main main characters are going to get the focus. Probably, like, I'm just, yeah. I'm just hoping that, you know, some of the girls get to have some fights because you see in the trailer, you get action scenes out of Bakugo and Todoroki, but then you follow that up immediately with Achaka saying, like, go! And it's like, eh, <laughs> I could, thought, you, I, I could know. you maybe show an action scene for, for her, too? Come yeah, on. Why does Achaka get the short end of the stick? She didn't even, we didn't even get to see her fight in the, like, the uh, Hasekai arc. Come on. Jesus. I know in the movie that looked like something that was that should be in a parody like yeah of course all the boys fight and then you have the girl going you can do it I believe in you yeah so I'm (laughs) hopefully they get fights too like please uh, I hope so my Yagi Rosu is gonna be a movie I hope she gets a fight so like I don't know (laughs) hopefully but either way I'm I'm super excited for the movie oh yeah that that's I hope that's gonna be a good movie Yeah, but there's even more stuff to look forward to in Anime Expo because Wiz Media has a ton of panels and things planned for it as well. They are going to be hosting Naokatsu Suda, the director of the JoJo's Bizarre Adventure anime, as well as the voice actor for D.O. Patrick Seitz and Christopher Tergliafara. (laughs) Tergliafara, I think that's better he voices avdol and stardust crusaders mm. so there's gonna have they're gonna have a jojo panel at 3 p.m on friday july 6th uh there's gonna be some news and announcements and there's some there's some rumors going around there's supposed to be some like jojo anime announcements coming up like something related to that so uh-huh. so there's also gonna be an autograph session at 5 10 on friday and attendees of this panel will receive a personalized signed poster from the Japanese staff and the English cast of Stardust Crusaders. And there will be a limited number of signing tickets uh, distributed at the Viz Boot on Friday at 10 a.m. So if you want to, like, do this autograph signing, you definitely should get to the Viz Boot bright and early on Friday. And then uh, we've got, like, some Sailor Moon panels. The entire English voice cast of Sailor Moon will be there. Except for, of course, Sailor, yeah, Sailor Mercury's voice dress like she usually doesn't attend these panels but like everyone else will be there including uh chris noisy who will voice helios in super s Hmm. so yeah it's like cool new cast member big fan of his as from uh, his youtubing and all his stuff Uh, i mean this panel is going to be on saturday july 7th at 10 a.m uh there'll be a lot of news updates and more from everyone's favorite guardians of love and justice then at 4 p.m., there'll be an English voice cast autograph session in the industry autograph area. And yeah, you can, you know, meet the cast and we're going to receive a special signed poster. But you gotta re- pick up signing tickets from the Viz Boot on Saturday at 2 p.m. for that. Hmm. There'll be a K7 Stories panel and uh, autograph thing also happening with uh, the producer Go Nakanishi, Patrick Seitz, 
Ashimbasuchiya and Kaname, who is an official cosplayer. And that will be on Saturday, July 7th at 11.50 a.m., where you can meet the voice staff and voice cast and a special signing section. And there will be uh, tickets for this event will be distributed at the Visboot Saturday at 10 a.m. And then at 6 p.m., there will be a K7 Stories premiere event in Petrie Hall. And attendees to this will be among the first to watch an all-new OVA set in the K-Universe with special guests and giveaways for attendees. And then we've got a Ruby panel on Friday, July 6th at 10.30 a.m. with the Ruby Creative team. Uh, it's an eye session. We've got Gray Haddock, the head of animation at Rooster Teeth, Carrie Shawcross, the animation director and co-writer. Uh, they will, you know, co-sign a poster and celebrate the official release of the Ruby Monk Anthology. And for tickets to this, you should stop by the Miss Boot at Thursday at 2 p.m. And then we've got a Homestuck panel, Saturday, July 7th at 10 a.m., uh, which will be a Homestuck creator autograph session in the autograph area where Andrew Hussey, the creator of Homestuck, will, you know, sign a personalized poster. And you can pick up a signing ticket for this on the Boot at uh, Friday at 2 p.m. There will be even more goodies and things to talk about uh, with Wiz. Because they have a lot of stuff they're going to be given out at that Viz boot. For uh, more information, their boot will be located on the main convention floor. Their boot number is boot number uh, 2206. So definitely make sure to memorize that. And they are giving up a lot of cool stuff and uh, at their boot. Uh, there will be a lot of free giveaways. There will be fun activities for guests. Fans can participate in the Sailor Moon Super as Pegasus Dreamcase to find Pegasus and win a special prize. There will be an exclusive Tokyo Ghoul poster that will be given away. So you should check the boot daily for you know the schedule for those activities. And then the retail area will have a lot of convention exclusives. Every purchase is going to come with a special uh, 2010 limited edition tote bag and two designs. My Hero Academia and Pokemon Sun and Moon, and I will definitely have to visit the panel, uh, the, the boot boat times to get boat bags. But yeah, there'll be some notable pre-sale items, including like Homestuck Book 1 and 2 with an exclusive dust jacket, uh, a My Hero Academia manga replica, a Boruto manga replica, Naruto Shippuden figure set, Naruto enamel pen, Sailor Moon Super S t-shirt, which looks to have Pegasus on the uh, as the graphic and it's, it's very nice looking definitely want that they'll also have like uh the latest sailor moon super s dvd they'll have um mha manga battle with volumes with the street they'll have a mha vigilantes volume one with will be bundled with a double side full color poster and if you uh get a premium jump membership there uh, you will get an exclusive phone and jump patch and my your academia desk and two collectible Yu-Gi-Oh! trading cards. In addition, Viz will have their own official panel at 2 p.m. on Thursday, July 5th at Petrie Hall, where they will have announcements, first looks, and prizes. The official Shonen Jump panel will be on Friday, July 6th at 11 a.m. in room 408AB, which will have a lot of news about new series, fan favorites, and what they are going to do to bring you the world's best manga. So definitely curious about like what new series they could be talking about. 
And that is basically it for all the stuff Wiz is going to be doing at Anime Expo this year. That's quite a lot of stuff, so definitely plan your schedule accordingly. I know I got to figure out my schedule for that too. And if you see me and V-Lord at Anime Expo, definitely say hi to us and uh, give us a shout out. Because, yeah, it'd be nice. We mm. definitely have planned to do a lot of activities there, have a lot of fun, hopefully record some podcasts and things. Bomber's going to be there. We're hopefully going to do some stuff with him. So, yeah. A lot of <sighs> cool stuff. Looking forward to Anime Expo. Man, I, I wish I could be there, but I, I guess I'll just have to be there in spirit. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, that sounds like a lot of really awesome stuff. But uh, I guess we could just move on to a little bit of Crunchyroll Expo news. They'll be hosting director uh, Atsushi Nishigori, character designer Masayoshi Tanaka, and producer uh, Yuichi Fukushima, f- who all work on the Darling in the Franks anime. And it looks like they're going to be doing a lot of really cool stuff. They're like doing collaborations with G-Kids to, you know, screen all their movies, including Mary and the Witch's Flower, Lou Over the Wall, uh, Napping Princess, and all that kind of stuff, as well as some Studio Ghibli films. Uh, so a lot of really cool stuff seems to be happening at Crunchyroll Expo. And, you know, just in case you're curious, Crunchyroll Expo will be held at the San Jose Convention Center in California this coming September. Uh, from September 1st through the 3rd. So you want to get ready for that? Still got a couple of months. So so there you go. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess just to move on with uh, some more news, the Japan Society uh, has announced recently that it will be hosting the United States premiere of the live-action Bleach film on July 28th as a part of the Japan Cuts uh, Festival of New Japan- Japanese Film. The director of the film, Shinsuke Sato, will appear at the screening to both introduce the film and introduce in a Q&A portion right after. And uh, it looks like the event will also be hosting the East Coast premiere of M- uh, Masaki Yuasa's Night is Short, Walk on Girl on uh, July 21st. And so, yeah, it looks like as far as like, I- I'm not sure if I'm not sure if I've uh, heard this from anywhere else yet, but it looks like as far as like the Bleach film is concerned, it's going to be basically covering like I guess everything before the Soul Society arc? Basically, though, of course, you know, they're making the story, like, it's not going to be a straightforward adaption, because from the trailers, like, Byaki and Renji are going to be heavily involved in the plot, but the villain of the movie is Grand Fisher, so it's like, they're, they're changing the plot to make it work as a standalone movie, but still have a lot of elements from this, you know... The substitution Agami art. Which honestly I I think could work. I think it's pretty easy to make a good standalone film out of Bleach, so Honestly, I, yeah. I wouldn't mind checking this out if I had the chance. Yeah, I think it looks promising. I, d- I guess I'm only interested... I mean, I'm really intrigued of, like, how Bianca and Reggie are going to fit into the plot of the movie. Because, like, the trailer shows them, like, fighting with Ichigo and stuff. But, like, they're also going to help him fight Grand Fisher or whatever. Like, how is that going to... Is it going to, like, transition into the beginning of Soul Society? Or is it going to have, like, a, an ending that's, like, closed off? And then in the next movie, it's, like... They go on to Soul Society. So it's kind of very interesting to me, but I'm interested. I'm I, I, could, the movie. I could see them maybe setting up for a sequel, but I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that about does it for industry news. So we're just going to finish off with a couple random news pieces here, starting off with uh, with some One Piece news a little bit, actually. Um, so Eiichiro Oda, you know, he's been a longtime supporter of, you know, supporting Kumamoto in the wake of the earthquake and whatnot. You know, writing messages and contributing, you know, original art for, uh, for, cause I, I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm pretty sure Oda was born and raised in Kumamoto. Yeah, it's his hometown. And so basically, 
Oda has donated 800 million yen, or roughly about 8 million U.S. dollars, to the area. And, you know, apparently his donation was offered in two separate gifts. Um, uh, 5 million yen under Luffy's name, and a second donation <laughs> of uh, 300 million yen, and uh, in which, obviously, some of that money will be used to kind of help reconstruct the area. And apparently the governor of Kumamoto, uh, Ikuo Kapashima, announced uh, at an assembly on June 15th that uh, the government will commemorate Ichiro Oda's very generous gift by placing a bronze statues of all the Straw Hat Pirates uh, throughout the affected areas. And apparently, and so I, I thought that was a really nice touch considering that's it's kind of a running joke in One Piece where Luffy constantly wants a bronze statue. Um, it, lo <laughs> it looks like his dream is finally coming true. Forget about the yeah. One Piece. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a really cool thing. I, I think that's a really nice touch. And uh, obviously it's very noble of Oda to be giving away that much money in order to, to help out his hometown. That, that really warms my heart. Mm -hmm. It's a really good story. And yeah, uh, hopefully this goes a long way into helping Kumamoto recover. But now we're going to talk about another recent controversy that's been happening. Why can't... Uh, I, I'm, I'm so tired of controversies. <laughs> yeah, so you know how the MMO junkie director got in trouble for, you know, his anti-Semitic tweets. Well, we have another, you know, guy who made some really bad comments and is rightfully getting punished for them. Uh, that is the author of the New Life Plus Young Get Another World novels, uh, mine, whose Twitter post contains some inappropriate content, insults, and discriminatory remarks directed at China and South Korea. And mm. so, you know, the staff of the anime that was supposed to come out later this year said that they were, that, that, you know, they are abandoning the project because of these comments because they believe the decision to adapt Mind's novels into anime is now considered inappropriate and because of like, you know, what he said. Uh, Mind, you know, may apologized on Twitter and, you know, for making people uncomfortable, said he's deeply reflecting without, you know, for posting like without quote unquote accurately understanding all the facts and giving deep thoughts into his words. Doesn't expect forgiveness at the people he accept, but he wanted to give a heartfelt apology. But regardless, like, uh, you know, uh, the New Life Plus anime has been canceled. Mine is going to delete his Twitter account in the near future after the apology he made spreads. Uh, Mine will discontinue offering the novels on Shosetsuka Ninaro website, and he is discussing plans with the publisher about the policy of correcting relevant print versions of the novels to, you know, correct some of the inappropriate and offensive comment that's in his novels. So, wow. Uh, so, like, there's actually repercussions happening here. Uh, like, it is affecting even the English license of the series because J Novel Club is suspending New Life Plus novel sales after July 1st uh, because of, you know, this whole controversy and Jane Novel Club released a statement with regards to the recent controversy surrounding problematic statements made by the original author of New Life Plus Young Again in the World. Jane Novel Club will be suspending its publication and sales of the English editions of the series after volume three starting July 1st, 2018, pending further consultation with the Japanese rights holder. Jane Novel Club apologizes for any convenience that 
this may cause its readers and as for their understanding in this difficult situation for all parties. So, yeah. Uh, you know, here's a controversy. Here's a, you know, thing where an author said some really awful things and he's getting punished for it and, you know, there are rightful repercussions happening. If only Watsky got the same treatment, but, uh, but, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's nice it's... to see, like, something like this can happen. Like, people can be punished for, you know, their wrongdoings. Mm, yeah, it's it's almost it's almost as if if you do something wrong, you'll get punished for it. Like, isn't that yeah. a, isn't that a new concept? Yeah, unless you're you're that successful and you make too much money, like Watsky, I guess. Yeah, but I mean, I'm 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 glad there's at least some justice in the world. Yeah, at least. But let's move on to some more exciting. Uh, really blood pumping news because we're gonna talk about some new games, some new anime inspired games. Whoa, the first video one we want to talk about is a new Kill La Kill game being developed from Art System Works. They developed an awesome Dragon Ball Z fighting game, the best Dragon Ball Z game ever in Dragon Ball Fighters, and now they're going to be making a Kill La Kill game just called Kill La Kill the Game. If. Uh, that's what it's called. <laughs> Kill a Kill the Game If. But, yeah, so, it's gonna be developed by Dark System Works and 8plus, who developed the Little Witch Academia game, where her results are really good. It'll be a f- game for one to two players, a fighting game, but, you know, they haven't, like, announced the price platform age rating quite yet, but, yeah, I mean, uh, some screenshots have been going around, and it, it seems to have a very similar cell state of Child of Fighter Z, where they really replicate the look of the anime. So this is something I'm super looking forward to. Uh, the at, at Anime Expo, they will have some more details of the game on July 6th at the Trigger Industry Panel at 5:30 that day. Arc System Works will have a boot at the convention, and the designer for the Kill Anime Sushio, as well as creative officer Hiromi Wakabayashi, will also visit America for the game and to talk about the game. So, really exciting stuff. I'm looking forward to a Kill a Kill fighting game. I think it'll be super rad. Uh, hopefully, we get some other trigger characters in there too. It'd be sweet if Inferno Cop was in there. It'd be sweet if Akko. From Little Witch was in there. It would be, you know, cool if Luluko was in there. There's, there's so many characters from Trigger that'd be cool to see in there. But like, the Kill a Kill cast is like, so cool already. Like, it's already gonna be tough, so fun to have with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that sounds pretty sweet. Mm-hmm. But let's close off with probably the most exciting new game announcement and specifically very manga related announcement. Yeah, so, um, you know, it's it's kind of funny that we're talking about, like, video games on the show, just because it's just something we don't usually get to talk about. And for me in particular, like, I unfortunately don't really play a lot of video games nowadays anymore. But, um, so, you know, usually when E3 comes around, it's just it's just kind of one of those things where I'm constantly seeing people, like, tweet about it as it's happening. And it's like, oh, that's cool. I don't have any context for what's going on, because I don't really, I don't really follow it, unfortunately. But, um, imagine my surprise when, you know, I'm just in the middle of, um, doing whatever... And I just happen to check Twitter, um, and I I see people like make jokes about like a shonen the shonen jump crossover being like the infinity war of crossovers or whatever. And I, I thought people were just like making jokes for some reason, but then I like looked further into it, and apparently there is a new shonen jump game coming out in 2019 called Jump Force. You know, if you look for the look for the trailer from E3, this was exclusively an- announced at E3 like no like leaks from Jump or anything had been uh released online, you know, before this, so I thought that was pretty cool. This, this was actually a surprise that I don't think anyone really saw coming. So, 
you know, you look at the trailer and it basically looks like it's going to be another Shonen Jump crossover fighting game kind of thing with all your favorite Shonen Jump characters, including uh, characters from very popular, notable series such as Dragon Ball and Naruto and One Piece. And apparently even Light and Ryuk from Death Note. Well, to clarify Light and Ryuk, there has been a statement from Koji Nagachima, the producer, that stated that yet yeah, Light and Ryuk will not be playable characters. They are there for the storyline of the game. Mm. So they're the antagonists of the storyline, but they're not actually playable characters. Mm. So, I mean, that's a shit. I mean, I, I kind of knew in the back of my mind it would probably be impossible to make them playable characters, but, you know, there was hope. But no, yeah, so so basically just to, like, give the skinny of the trailer a little bit, just to kind of talk about the trailer a little bit, like, you, know, you basically have Goku and Naruto and Luffy kind of fighting each other or whatnot in New York well, City. Well, they're fighting Frieza, Yes, 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 they're, they're fighting, fighting Frieza. Frieza. In New York City, which I think is the most important part, because it's like, why are they in New York? And you got, like, Luffy standing in front of the American flag, all Spider-Man style, and I can hear, like, Nickelback in the playing as I see that scene. <laughs> Uh, they say that I hear. Okay, but no, yeah, it looks like you have uh, you have all these characters fighting against Frieza, which you know that's you know that's like nothing new. We've seen that kind of stuff before in other jump games. But you know, like at the end of the trailer, you have this like you know, you have like a stinger at the end with like you know Ryuk and Light like standing on top of a building, just watching the city burn, and it's like ooh, what's going on there? So, but you know, like Sid said, you know, it's been confirmed that they are going to be basically the antagonist of the story, which I think is kind of interesting, actually. Yeah, I think that's the most awesome idea you could have for a jump crossover story, is that you have you have Light Yagami be the antagonist. Yeah. Like, here's a guy who does not have any special powers, except the fact that he can kill people with the Death Note. And that's pretty, like, sick. That you have these super powerful guys, and they have to fight against a guy, you know, who, you know, is not physically strong, but they have to outsmart him and his, like, insanely deadly ability. Hmm. So, yeah, I guess regardless of, like, the quality of the game, because I know there's been a lot of hubbub because this game is being um, developed by Spike Chunsoft, which... uh, we're also the developers for J-Star's Victory Versus, and I know there's a lot of sort of, uh, you know, negative opinions on that game as well. So, you know, I've seen a lot of people who are kind of like, oh, I, I hope this game is at least better than that game or whatever. But I mean, I don't know, at least as far as like the story goes, I want to see how that turns out because I think it could. Mm-hmm. It, there's potential for a really interesting like crossover idea in there, which I think is kind of cool. But um, I don't know from from what little I've seen of the gameplay and what like from what little footage is actually like out there. I mean, it looks pretty cool, I think. I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of people who are either like really pumped up for the game or either either they're really pumped up for the game or they just don't really like the look of the game at all. I mean, I will admit, the trailer looked very red. It kind of hurt my eyes a little bit to watch the trailer at first, honestly. Colors are too dark. I don't like, like, the really dark look they're going for this and, like, the serious vibe, because to me, like, a jump crossover thing, it should be, like, really fun. And I don't really feel like it recaptures a manga aesthetic. It's like they're trying to shade the characters so they look more realistic and they have more, like, details on the characters. And I'm like... I would prefer something more stylistically akin to, like, you know, the a manga aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really the only, as far as I can remember, the only jump game we've kind of gotten that aesthetic for has been, like, Jump Ultimate Stars on the DS, like, over 10 years ago at this point. 
which that's that's still a fun game. I really like revisiting that every once in a while. But man, I would what I wouldn't give for like a game sort of like that with a, with the current roster of jump characters. That would be amazing. Yeah, I mean, like if Arc System were supposed to develop like a Fire Z style Shonen Jump game, like that's what I really want. I think that would be amazing. That that would but, be really cool. No. Um, but I don't know. I I think there's potential for this game to be at least slightly better than J Stars because I mean, you know, I I like J Stars for what it is. It's a fun like little piece of what I like to call Shonen Jump propaganda. <laughs> but you know, like it's 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 not exactly like a groundbreaking video game or anything. It's and I mean, you know. I, I know, Sid. You have your you have your gripes about like the the like the split screen system with the the certain options of the game. I'm yeah, the split screen and the camera are just terrible in that game. Like the the appeal of the game to me was like the fact that you could play as so many different Shonen Jump characters in the same game. That was like what was cool. Yeah, but, like the actual gameplay, not great. Not R- really, great. like I I feel. <sighs> It's it's a shame because like I was I remember being really excited for that game when it was first being announced but like man after like getting my own copy like man the novelty of that game really wears off kind of quickly. Well, I mean I still enjoyed playing it just because I like playing as like my favorite characters. Like I got to play as Bobobo in a game. I don't there aren't a lot of games out here in English officially licensed that I can play with as Bobobo but like I mean that's yeah, that's true. Know. Um it, I would yeah. prefer a good game that Bobobo was in. That I could play it him in, you know, maybe this can be it. Um, but I don't know. It, I'm, I'm kind of of the opinion of uh, some people where it's like, you know, it, it seems like this game in particular is probably going to be geared to uh, the Western side of Jump fandom. I could see the roster for this game being filled with a lot of like really, like really, really popular like characters as far as like North, like North American side of Jump goes. But I mean, we'll, we'll just have to see. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you yeah, have any I thoughts mean, on that. There's a lot of characters they could choose from. But do you and I, who I think will be perfect for this game, Koro Sensei. You know why? Because Koro Sensei, no one knows his real name. Light can't write his name down in the Death Note. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess that's true. Mm-hmm. And speaking of Koro Sensei, it's time, I think, we went back to class. We went back to talking about why assassination classroom was so cool. Let's begin our assassination classroom discussion. Class is in session. おはようございます。殺先生です。授業を始めます。ぬる。
Class is in session. It's time for roll call. Number three, one, Colton. Present. Number three, fifty, Bomber. Present. I guess two to forty nine are not here. <laughs> I guess it's gonna be a short class today. Well, try your best anyway. I am your sensei, Lamrawiyasha sensei, Kora Lamrawiyasha sensei, the unkillable Lamrawiyasha, here to guide you to teach you all about Yuse Matsui's assassination classroom. <laughs> assassination classroom. Yes, the series that was. Re- serialized in Weekly Shonen Jump from July 2012 to April 2016. 180 chapters, 21 volumes about an unkillable octopus-like teacher and the 28 students tasked to destroy him within one year or otherwise the earth will be destroyed by the monster. Very recently, Viz Media has completed their English localization of the series, and so we thought this would be the ideal time to talk about it. To go back to class, the assassination classroom. Revisit it, dissect it, learn all about it. Yeah, so I, I'm not sure if, you know, just in case you may not have listened to our previous episode, uh, we did at one point have a whole episode dedicated uh, to Yusei Matsui. Yes, episode 18, way back from October 2016. There you go. Um, and... Honestly, like as much fun as I have with that discussion and as well as, you know, but Bomber was a part of that discussion as well. Hey, Bomber. Nice to have you back on the show, by the way. Totally don't remember that. <laughs> hey, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, well, just just to recap, Bomber, um, as I was saying, you know, as much fun as I had talking about Yusei Matsui as he's pretty much one of my favorite comic artists of all time. You know, that was mostly a discussion on Nero. Yeah, we spent an hour on Nero and only like twenty eight minutes on ass class. <laughs> ass yeah, class. so I mean, I mean, that's mostly because Nero was kind of more fresh in our minds because we had all basically reread it, and yeah. Assassination Classroom unfortunately wasn't as fresh in our minds, and I feel I feel kind of bad about that because like I don't know I it's so weird because like I, I was really into Assassination Classroom when it first like I I guess premiered I. I guess just to kind of start us off, like I pretty much read it from like the beginning because I was already super into Matsui stuff thanks to Nero. But there, the, it just got to a point where it was like, you know, I'm always so behind on like weekly manga. So like I would ba- I basically ended up reading the series in chunks. Um, so I, I especially a lot of the later parts of the manga with the more uh, story focused story focused uh, parts or whatnot. And it just got to a point where, like, I just for some reason, I just had a I had a really hard time, like, uh, keeping the story fresh in my mind week to week. But I think reading it all for the podcast today, I have a I like I think I got a better sense for how cohesive the story is. And I think I've been able to kind of keep it a little fresher in my mind uh, reading it that way personally. But yeah, so I, I basically we figured it'd be time to actually talk about Assassination Classroom and delve a little more deeply into it because we honestly I don't think we really gave it much justice in the Matsui episode unfortunately um, and I'm hoping to maybe fix that today. Yes I think we'll do a good job because Colton and I have both reread the series beginning to end 
for the first time since it ended. So a lot of it is fresh in our minds and there's plenty to give into. Hell, the first time I read it, I, I never even I didn't even f- actually finish it until like just recently. <laughs> um, so I so like I've actually read it all for the first time. So that's that's a monumentous occasion. Um, so I guess, yeah, as Sid put it earlier, yeah, Assassination Classroom is basically about this um, uh, about this class of students in junior high who are basically tasked to kill this weird octopus creature who is basically going to, uh, you know, after he destroyed like 70 percent of the moon, is now going to destroy the entire Earth unless the entire class or at least somebody in that class assassinates him as they are tasked by basically the Japanese government for a large sum of money, um, which I guess I, I guess I could just start us off by saying, and I, I'm not sure if I brought this up in our Matsui episode, but the thing I love about Yusei Matsui's works is that I personally feel like Matsui is pretty much incapable of coming up with anything boring as far as like manga premises go. Yeah, it comes up with a lot of interesting stuff. Like, if you try to explain that to someone, there's no way you have to read his manga for them to make any <laughs> sense. Like, like I could I could tell you what One Piece is about, and you might be like, okay, that's interesting, just from an, a description of it without ever reading it. But with anything Matsui does, yeah, it's about a brain-eating demon who likes, he eats mysteries like Slurpees. <laughs> and, you know, he, he solves mysteries, and he has, like, this girl that he does it with. How do you... <laughs> and it's like you're not wrong that is what it's about but I, I i cannot tell you how many times i have told my friends about nero and have tried to explain to them what it's about and have basically just kept it as oh it's about a demon from hell who eats mysteries like they always look at me like i'm a, like i'm an insane person because it's like <laughs> that how does that make any sense unless you've actually unless you actually take a look and check out Nero for yourself. It just doesn't. It does not make any sense out of context. And I think I think that's the beauty of a lot of Matsui's works is that, you know, th- his premises are so they're so weird, you know, trying to explain them out of context that it's like like you you kinda you kinda have to check them out. Yeah, you can't like I've translated two of his one shots. I mean one, the Tokyo Tokyo Department Store memoir. I'm pretty sure I'm messing up the title. I translated that and it's literally about a little girl going to buy a gift for her dad in a mall where all of the stuff there like it's a it's an actual bargain hunter, but all the stuff there's alive, so it's like He's hunting bargains, literally. And, and see, <laughs> so, out of everything Matsui has created thus far, that might be his most normal premise. And then the other one, um, Reconchote, or Divorce Reconciliation, uh, that one's about Zeus, who got divorced from his wife, and he's literally dividing the world in half. <laughs> <laughs> and, he's, and he's doing it by dragging a giant sword across the world. I totally forgot about that one. Yeah, I, I'm just like, no, hearing you talk about the weird promo, I forgot about them, and I translated them both. <laughs> so, and it's not, it wasn't until I heard you talk about the prize, I was like, yeah, I, I did work on a couple of Matsui things, and Nero, of course, for a little while. But, yeah, it's just, none of his stuff is, I, 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 w- I wouldn't go so far as saying they don't make sense, but, like, 
I mean, he drew he. I don't know if he drew it or if it was an interview, but he did something about how to how to cook an ox turtle. Ox. I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing the animal's name wrong, <laughs> but it's like a salamander thing. Ox turtle. Axel turtle. Um, <laughs> anyway, I, look, I wouldn't be able to pronounce that name for the life of me either. So don't feel too bad. Yeah, I, I, it's he, he. I think he did a one shot where he and Araki of JoJo fame like tried to cook this thing. Yeah. I don't know if it was a one-shot or, like, an interview, though. I'm pretty sure it's, like, a three-part interview or something like that. I think he I think he also drew, like, a short little manga about it, because I feel like I remember reading that somewhere. I don't remember. But, uh, yeah, like, <laughs> I mean, the, the, the premise of Assassination Classroom is already, like, so weird and, like, like, I actually just, um, I just started watching the anime with, uh, with my best friend uh, pretty recently, because... You know, reading through this entire thing, it pretty much in the span of like two or three weeks, I've just I like I've basically rediscovered my love for Assassination Classroom. And so it's like, man, I really want to show this to people because like, you know, <laughs> like I love Nero and everything, but it's like it, Nero is a whole other thing. But like from from the little I've seen of Nero's anime, it's it's not very like super representative of the source material, unfortunately. And I mean, I I hear certain parts of the anime are pretty good, but like, you know, I would rather people read the manga for Nero just to get for for them to have the full experience. And I mean, we were kind of talking about it off mic, but Assassination Classrooms, as you know, as much as they kind of like plow through certain material from what I've seen so far, I'm a lot more confident in Assassination Classrooms adaptation than I am Nero's, at least. Um, Yeah. Yeah. You know, they don't they like, you know, they have to take certain like minor bits of the story out, but it's not like anything super important. Um, You know, it's a good enough adaptation where I feel comfortable showing it to my friend, you know, who would much rather watch anime than read manga most of the time. But no. Yeah. Like I I was watching it. I was watching the first couple episodes uh, with my friend the other day. And it's like, you know, like the entire setup, you know, always catches people off guard until you know like way later down the line when it like makes more sense and i think that's another reason why the premise works is that like you want to you want to figure out like you basically want to see all the pieces kind of fall in place because you know obviously there is there is a reason why uh koro sensei decides oh i want to teach this class but you're just kind of like why is he so hell-bent on teaching this class of nobodies like what is what is in it for him why does he want to destroy the world uh, they certainly tease it in the first chapter because we do get that flashback showing uh, we don't know who this woman is at the time, but she tells Corson, say, what wonderful tentacles you have. You'd make an excellent teacher. So you get a hint. There's something motivating him related to something happening in his past, but you don't quite know what and you don't quite know if he's truly uh, a benevolent figure or if he's really malevolent. And I think what's the really ingenious part of the premise of Assassination Classroom is that it's rooted in something pretty raw in terms of like an emotion kids might have in terms of like this fantasy of killing your teacher. The Viz Williams, in fact, even promote it with that like idea. Uh, Ever caught yourself screaming, I could just kill that teacher? What would it take to justify such antisocial behavior and weeks of detention? Especially if he's the best teacher you ever had. Giving you an F on a quiz, mispronouncing your name during roll call again. (laughs) So, you know, again, this is like probably something a lot of kids have felt. They've had this teacher where they were like, man, I hate that guy. I wish I could kill that guy. 
And it's really ingenious that Moth 3 would take that premise and, like, make it into this absurd comedy fantasy kind of idea. So abstract to the point that, you know, there's nothing imitable about it. But it's still rooted in, like, something that, like, kids would think, oh my god, this would be so cool. I wish I could be in this assassination classroom where my job would be to kill this teacher. But this teacher is also the best teacher I've ever had. That's another really ingenious thing about the premise, right, is that it lures in younger readers with this kind of, like, edgelord fantasy of, like, oh, yeah, I totally want to kill my teacher. My teacher sucks. But then somewhere along the way, you start to wish that you had a teacher like Koro-sensei because he's just that inspiring of a character. It's, it's funny to me because I remember, like, you know, I, I remember when, before Viz picked it up, like, they were really kind of skeptical about it. I remember hearing stuff about that. They were like, yeah, we're not so sure about killing teachers and everything. But then, like, yeah. the manga exploded in popularity in Japan. And then it just probably got to a point where they couldn't ignore it anymore. Yeah. I mean, it was, like, the number two for a while. Like, they were, like, emphasizing it almost as much as One Piece in the magazine with how many covers it was given a year. Like, in terms of, like, group covers, Koro-sensei would be the second most prominent character on the cover besides Luffy. So it was, like, huge. Yeah, and I have to respect Matsui for that, though. Like, I know he said early on that he had a plan for this thing to be no more than this length, and he stuck with it even though the series exploded in popularity. Mm-hmm. And he didn't like. I was actually because I mentioned to my sisters on my my other sisters on my way back today before we did the podcast. You know, oh, I have to do something with friends about assassination class. And they're like, oh yeah, we love that series. You know, it was the ending was really beautiful and everything and like that. And I never hear like my sisters are really kind of like. You know, they watch anime, they enjoy it, but then they don't think about stuff again. They don't rewatch things. They don't really get too emotionally involved in it. It's like, it's either, oh, this was good or it was bad. That's how they feel about it. For, so then for them to say, oh, the Coral Sensei ending was really beautiful. I mean, I have to say that, you know, that was the show, like Colton said, that I watched it by myself. Then I was like, my sisters would like this. And I we watched it together, too. And they loved it. So it was really nice. I wish I could convince them to read the manga because it's just way better. But <laughs> still, I'm glad that they really enjoyed Assassination Classroom to the point that they're still it's an ending that they still stuck with them even now. So and me, too. I, you know, uh, as somebody who came from Nero to Assassination Classroom, too. I was kind of in and out with the manga. I wasn't, there were some parts of the manga I remember really well and some parts I don't. But I really think, as you guys are saying, like, Matsui's just great at taking these absurd premises, especially with Assassination Classroom. Like, you wouldn't think that you'd be able to feel anything. It sounds like the setup of a comedy series, but he makes some really great heartfelt moments out of it. It's like, I'm actually beginning to feel for this classroom. And he doesn't do it in a really heavy-handed way where it's like, it gets to the point where it's like, okay, this is getting, you know, uh, this is getting a little too sicky, sickly sweet. We get it. They lo- they love their teacher. Ugh. Exactly. It's like, ugh, you know, and it's like, even the students' problems are relatable without seeming, the- it's funny, He the premise itself is over the top, but what the students go through as students isn't. Yeah. Like, a lot of their problems are actually pretty relatable, even though they have this, the figure of Koro-sensei so ridiculous that you just, you can't help but laugh at him, but their problems are kind of like, oh, wow, I guess I kind of understand that. Yeah. 
the root of all their problems is something that like real kids goes through on being unable to communicate like feeling overwhelmed by their success so they start to goof off or like feeling that they thought this mentor figure had their back but they betrayed him so now they can't trust adults anymore or you know like just pressure from their family to do well and whatnot and just stuff like that yeah, pressure from their family to do exactly as their parents instruct, even, in the case of Nagisa. So there's just so... Like, the problems each of the characters have feel very real. They feel like stuff that kids are actually going through. So this manga is extremely helpful and like, kids can read this and they can relate to a character situation and they can take away from the manga like some really practical lessons to like, look at their life and, you know, steer in the direction they want to and help them out of jams. Yeah, so... Uh, Sid, I'm I'm kind of curious just because since um, Bomber and I obviously we were already like really big Matsui fans. I know, I know you didn't read Nero until we talked about it like about a year or two ago at this point. So uh, how, how did how did you kind of get it to Assassination Classroom? Well, I heard about it from Reputation. Because Assassination Classroom was getting so big, I was noticing Koro Sensei. Uh, images pop up all the time. I was hearing the name on Satsuo Koshitsu, Assassination Classroom pop up. I was seeing it prominently on, you know, the scanlation sites. I used to visit to read One Piece and all that. And I was also, in general, just interested in reading more Shonen Jump series. My goal was to read everything that was running at the time in Shonen Jump. And because Assassination Classroom was getting so big, it had such an interesting premise that I found really interesting. And I really like Koro Sensei's design because it's so unique and really grabbing in its simplicity, in its ability to be humorous and menacing, that there was just so much that intrigued me about it. And I had just had so much incentive to read it that ultimately I ended up doing so. And... What's great about this is that I documented my initial impressions on the Animation Revelation forums. So I can like give you almost an exact timeline of like when I started reading this. Because I'm looking in the What Are You Reading thread on Animation Revelation. And on the 54th page, I can scroll down to the very bottom and see on February 25th, 2014, the first time I ever talked about my thoughts on Assassination Classroom. And from this, I can gather I was, I started reading Assassination Classroom in the February of 2014. So this would have been about, yeah, a year and a half of the series' serialization. And so I'll just share like my initial impressions of Assassination Classroom at that time. So this is me, February 25th, 2014. I've started to read Assassination Classroom recently, and I'm about 30 chapters in. It's one of the biggest hits in Jump right now. It's consistently number two behind One Piece, and it was the number one choice for male readers in a list by professional manga experts. So far, I think it's very amusing. The basic stories in the manga sort of remind me of great teacher Onizuka, and that they involve Korosensei helping out students in trouble and getting to realize their skills and potential. It's not quite as good with those stories because it doesn't go as far or as potent with them as Onizuka does, but it makes up for it with a bizarre sense of humor that I find quite amicable. Korosensei is absolutely hilarious. 
He's this ultra dangerous and kind of sinister creature, but he has this big goofy grin and octopus-like design, and he's so damn friendly and polite that he can't help but be likable. And again, he really cares about his students even though their job is to kill him. He gives them advice and helps them improve their skills. He is the nicest, coolest protagonist ever. I can't say the students stand out that much though, except for Karma and Ritsu. The Nagasa isn't too bad as a major protagonist, despite not having that much of a distinct personality. It's really Korra Sensei's assistant teachers, Bit Sensei and Karasuma, that provide the most memorable moments aside from Korra Sensei itself. Overall, it's a fun manga so far, though I don't quite see how it's become the number two manga in Jump right now behind One Piece. Of course, I have 48 chapters until I catch up, and from what I've heard, it tells me it gets better, so I'll see. And then, on March 11, 2014, I caught up to Assassination Costume. And so let's see how my opinions changed in that time. I've caught up with Assassination Costume. It amazes me how popular this series has become. It totally deserves it. I don't think there's anything else quite like it. It's a comedy manga that takes cues from GTO, but it combines it with occasional clever battle stories and blends it together with slice of life humor. It's an interesting mix that pays off, and at this point, the many characters of the story, including Nagasa, who I previously considered a bit bland, have come into their own and have become fun characters in their own right. The series had its first serious story arc between chapters 60 to 73. At first, I was hesitant to read what I thought was going to be a transition into more battle shonen territory, which are so far my least favorite aspects of Kintama. See, this is this is how you can tell this is dated thoughts of mine. But the <laughs> way it was presented was really interesting. With Korra-sensei unable to fight, the students and Karasuma and Irina had to manage on their own to take down deadly professionally trained assassins. I think their skills, which were shown developing in previous chapters, were employed believably here without it seeming ridiculous or questionable. The students were still way weaker against the professional assassins and had to rely on carefully planned tactics in order to survive. I especially enjoyed Nagisa's fight with the mastermind, which was completely one of wit and exploiting his enemy's nerves. It was a great moment for his character. The arc had great moments for nearly all the characters, in fact, especially Terasaka, who has quickly become one of my favorite characters in the series. Overall, if the manga can create more interesting tactical and strategic fights and arcs like they did here in the future, then I think I can enjoy more serious, battle shonen-esque moments from it. I'm sure another serious arc is brewing considering all the assassins that are being slaughtered, including Irina's teacher, which surprised me, and Itena and Shiro are on the move again. I like the more down-to-heart comedy slice-of-life stories and assassin plots. So I hope the series still manages to balance those as it goes forward. Overall, I'm really enjoying this manga, and it's definitely a deserved hit. I hope it continues to be consistently entertaining and gain respectable popularity when it comes over to the States. And so, uh, on March 11, 2014, I caught up to it, I enjoyed it, and from then on, I started reading it weekly. The first chapter that I read when I caught up to it uh, the first chapter that was out by the time I caught up to it was chapter 80, which was Kaede's chapter. And I basically continued to read it weekly from there on out right up to the ending. So basically, I kept up with it for the remaining 100 chapters, two years of its run, which is a pretty good stretch of time. I mean, halfway. I Basically, I kept up with half of the series' run as it was going on weekly. 
And yeah, as the you know, as the series went on, it just got better and better. And you can track my thoughts on all the developments of the series right up from the point I caught up to it to the end in the currently running manga discussion tread on Animation Revelation, starting from page eight and going to oof, I don't know how many pages this goes to catch up to where it ended in twenty sixteen. But basically, from there, you can read my thoughts on every chapter and. Suffice to say, Assassination Classroom was one of my favorite series to read week to week during the time I was keeping up with it. And it's definitely one of my favorite series. As it was running, I think it became one of my favorite series. I just connected to it more and more. And revisiting it now for this podcast, I think I, my feelings of it have just grown stronger. And I... Could watch the anime as it came out, and you know, I I just enjoyed that, and I haven't really done a full reread of it until this podcast, and I'm incredibly glad that I was able to. I have been buying the manga, the Viz release of the manga, ever since it you know first came out over here in December 2014, and I have all the volumes now, and. It's just been a treat going through all those, like reading these volumes themselves for the first time because of so much of the extra bonus material in them too. But also because this translation is also really good. And in general, the series is just so rewarding to reread in this way. I mean, I guess my Assassination Classroom story is... I mean, it's pretty boring. I was I translated Nero for like ten chapters. Then I heard Matsu was coming back, and I like Nero, so I figured, hey, there's. I was gonna try to translate um Assassination Classroom, but then another translator, which I forgot her name, but she did a really great job. I mean, she was unofficial, but this was before Viz, but she did a really good job because she would actually have like a list of like the jokes because a lot of there were a lot of puns with the word kill in Japanese. <laughs> so I, I I would think I probably should at some point read Viz's version just to see how they handled it. But yeah, there were a lot of puns with the word kill. So the translator that was doing the scanlations at first, she would actually go through it and list the jokes at the end. Or, I mean, I don't remember if it was at the end, like she had a note page at the end, or she wrote them in the chapter, but whichever. But she would actually go through the effort of explaining each one of these jokes. And I was just kind of like, wow, I mean, if I were translating that, I probably couldn't do it. But, and she would talk, I mean, some she would leave alone and just leave a note, this is what it is, and this is why... I left it alone, and some she would actually explain the joke, or she'd localize it, and they were always really good. So, I, I again, I would really love to see if Viz was able to do what she did, but she did a really good job, I think, for, like, the first 100 chapters or so. So, so I, I have to confess something. So, I, I went on a pretty huge, like, roller coaster ride with Assassination Classroom in terms of, like, I guess how I felt about it, like, I guess compared to, like, Nero, which... You know, if I haven't already mentioned it like five million times, like, you know, Nero is one of my favorite comics of all time. Like, no question um, next to Ice Shield 21 and One Piece, because, you know, just something about Nero and Matsui's art, especially in that series, is just so striking and just really left an impression on me as a teenager at the time when I read it like years and years ago. Um, and, you know, even on like a reread, like I just appreciated it even more. So unfortunately, I, I had this thing where it was like, you know, I, I just kept comparing Assassination Classroom to Nero in terms of like its quality. And I should say as far as its art goes, because 
I don't know what it was, but like when I first started reading Assassination Classroom, like I, as much as I enjoyed the story, it, it, it just kind of bummed me out that Matsui's art wasn't it didn't stand out to me as much. I mean, you know, that's it, not to say his art is good, but it was just missing that weird surreal quality that he had in Nero. I mean, me too. I remember looking at um, Assassination Classroom and being like, oh, the art isn't really as interesting as Nero. And I remember um, Matsui basically said, oh, Nero only looked the way it did because I just suck at drawing. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I mean, like, it's not like this isn't like something I'm doing to make a statement or to stand out or anything. I'm just I'm just really bad at drawing human anatomy. So I just leaned into it. You turned a limitation into a strength. Like, he created, like, this surreal world where, like, humans look strange, and he used that for very creepy, uh, atmospheric effect. So, Matsui is a brilliant artist in how he's able to recognize his own limitations and twist that in a way that works in the context of his series in terms of evoking emotion, tone, and mood, and to create something, like, unsettling and engaging. Which is ironic, considering that's sort of a that's sort of a running theme in Assassination Classroom. Yeah, and I and I feel like with Assassination Classroom, the reason why it isn't as visual. I mean, I wouldn't go as far as saying not visually interesting, but I feel like it's different because Matsui's kind of like had a little more time to get better at his craft to a point that he's like now a little bit. You, I feel like Assassination Classroom's more confident art wise. Nero was like Nero's like okay I, I I not so much that I don't know what I'm doing but it's like okay I'm not very good at this so I'm gonna kind of work around it <laughs> while assassination classroom is like Matsui striding in and being like yeah I can handle this you know I when when the surreal happens it felt more like I'm being surreal on purpose now and not because I'm limited so i'm using the surreal i mean i don't know a way to put it i don't want to make it sound like matsui didn't know what he was doing or his artwork was an accident but it definitely feels more like where neuro like like sid said neuro was more like a thing where he turned a weakness into a strength while assassination classroom was like he finally got the strength he was looking for and expanded upon it so that's the way i like looking at a like assassination classroom but I definitely agree. His paneling is always really fun to look like. His pages layouts are always fun to like just look at. Mm, yeah, and like, I, the, 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 I mean, like you know, Assassination Classroom still has its share of like standout pages. Like um, I was gonna mention earlier, there's a lot of there's a lot of good stuff in um, what was it uh, Nagisa's rematch with uh, Takaoka and how uh, you know when he goes for the final blow. Uh, and how Nagisa's about to uh, smirk at Takaoka, b- b- basically killing whatever mental fortitude he had. Oh, the clap is so good. Like the way it like shakes like uh, Takaoka's like mind. It's like his eyes are really big. There's like this burst of like thing of like uh, his like mind is being exploded. It's like fucking amazing. I mean, that's great, too, but uh, I was more so going to mention the uh, just a slight like touches in detail. Like it, you just you have a great page of just like this column of like as Nagisa's uh, smirk gets uh, as it, as basically the camera gets closer and closer on his smirk. His uh, his panels merge with Takaoka's like basically representing how 
Nagisa smirk is going to be ingrained in Takaoka's mind for pretty much the rest of his life. And yeah. that that's something I really love about Matsui's work is that he te- he pays attention to little details like that. And I think it really just makes his artwork stand out that much more. I just I love stuff like that so much. Um like this is this is also the same guy where like he had a, he had a page in Nero where like I I think it I think it was during the Hal arc where like uh Nero shattered something and and the glass that got shattered uh, you could see the glass like reflecting the uh, like the panel borders on the manga page like that kind of shit's amazing like I've never seen anybody like pay attention to details like that in comics like that's just that stuff blows my mind honestly mm-hmm. yeah yeah I really love and I get this idea that like Matsui's is very very meticulous in drawing stuff like that like I just imagine him really just saying, "Let's, how can I make this page pop?" Exactly. Um, yeah. But uh, I was also going to mention how um, I think Assassination Classroom. I because I was saying earlier how b- both Nero and Assassination Classroom have different strengths and weaknesses, and where I think Assassination Classroom, uh, what Assassination Classroom lacks in like very surreal eye popping art, I think the emotional core of its story. And how how great the characters are written are basically make up for that because like you know I love Nero and I love it till the death till the death of time, but you know and I'm not saying the characters in Nero are like bad or anything, but honestly, there there were very few times where like I really felt like emotionally attached to Nero. It, it's really weird. I'm not really sure how to describe it. Well, yeah, because Nero isn't a very emotional character. He's like very unconcerned with the suffering of the people around him. He does have a soft spot for certain people, especially Yako, but also throughout the series, you know, he's torturing Yako and he does not care for her feelings or for the fact that she is in pain. But, you know, they have like a friendship and a mutual respect and have a relationship of trust that they grow. And so like that does have an emotional climax and Yako has her own like arc too, but for the most part, like it, there's just not a whole lot of like deep emotional moments where like the characters are really feel like they are affected by what is happening. Well, I mean, Yako more so, but like it, it, in terms of like just like how powerful like the character arcs are in terms of like it's just hard to be like the connection Koro Sensei forms with all of the students because. He spends time, like, cultivating a relationship with each of them, and we see that, and we see how much he means to them and how much he's changed their lives. So when we get to the emotional climax of Assassination Classroom, it's just that powerful. And the emotional climax of Nero, it it's just, the relationship between Yako and Nero is very strong, but it just, compared to, like, the relationship Koro Sensei cultivated with every character in Class 3 and how the series delivered that climax with all of them assassinating Koro Sensei in a tearful gesture and Koro Sensei even having one last bit where he like calms them down as they're getting worked up and frustrated and like tells Nagisa, don't kill me with those emotions. Have a smile on your face, you know? It's just... The climax in Nero, it just doesn't have something, like, as, like, powerful as that. Let me just put it this way. 
I, as much as I love Nero and, you know, I think I still like it just slightly more than Assassination Classroom. Um, Nero did not make me sob for like 10 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Assassination Classroom. Like I had, I had just finally like really actually read the ending of Assassination Classroom. Like literally, I think just today. And man, I, <sighs> so let me just say like, I won't say it just yet, but like, I think part of the reason I didn't finish Assassination Classroom the first time was like, was because I think I was literally like a a whole volume away from finishing it. And I just never got around to finishing it. And then by the time it ended, you know, I had already heard people talking about it. So I kind of already knew what happened. So I was like, oh, okay, well, I'll just get to this at some other point. And then, you know, I was kind of afraid, like, oh, because I know what's going to happen that I wasn't going like I wasn't going to feel anything by the end. Oh, boy, was I wrong. Holy (laughs) shit. Oh, man. I think that, man, I was actually really hurt. I was I I was tweeting today like, man, I'm not strong enough to go through this. I can't do this. (laughs) That was a journey. I have to say one thing, though. I was not so like the it's so good at the fake out because I remember translating the spoilers and I kept like thinking you know it's the show in tradition too I kept thinking okay they kept coming up with these things where like I mean I don't want to say too much since we'll probably get to it later but uh, they kept doing things where it was kind of like okay you it's gonna be a happy ending and I mean it is a happy ending let me don't let me not say that it isn't it's a happy ending but it's like I kept thinking okay Something's going to happen. Everybody's going to walk away from this, you know, and it's going to that's how the series is going to end. But Matsui stuck with his guns. Yeah. Up until the final chapter, he stuck with his guns, even though he kept faking us out with all of these things where it seemed like everything was going to work out to the students and Koro Sensei's advantage. He stuck with his gun to the very end, and I had to respect him for that. Yeah. I mean, he had that ending in mind from the beginning, and he pulled through with that. Like, his author comment at the end of Volume 20 is, Ever since I started this series, I've had a clear image of the last scene of this volume. I've always believed that the success or failure of the story of Assassination Classroom would depend upon how well I did Chapter 177. So the entire series built up to that ending. And Matsui... May had everything go the way he needed to in order to make that ending as effective as possible because that was the lynch pit, that's the lynch point of the series that is what is the series is building up to and like what its legacy it ultimately will be and like how successful that chapter was and, and he nailed it he nailed it even though it's been years since i read i can't believe it it feels like still just yesterday as the series ended it honestly wasn't that long ago because it was two years ago but two years is is a long time you know as a consumer of manga yeah yeah i mean like jump has been through i mean jump has had many series come and go in that time so uh, i mean it feels like i i still feel i still remember writing up those spoilers for the last time that Thursday morning and just being like, this is it. Man, yeah, that's that's something else I was kind of thinking about the other day, too, is while I was reading this and, you know, while I was, like, 
you know, watching the anime with my friend the other day, like, and I was talking with her and she, my, my friend is so stubborn. She has a hard time getting into things when like, they're like too popular to the point where like everybody, it feels like everybody's talking about them and nobody will shut up about things. And like, I totally, I totally get where she's coming from because I have stayed away from certain properties because it's like, you know, like, you know, when I was in middle school, like, I stayed away from franchises like Harry Potter and, like, Avatar The Last Airbender because those were the only two things that, like, you know, my middle school class would just never shut up about. And it just, like, you know, after hearing them talk about these things so much and, you know, after this being, like, the only subject of discussion amongst my peers, it's like, I don't want to get into it. I want to get away from it because I'm sick of hearing about it. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, that's just me and her so like she she made this comment like oh I, I didn't get into it because nobody would shut up about it and i'm like well i mean i don't know like it just made me think like because assassination classroom like we were talking about it was was really popular when it first hit because i think uh, i was i was reading on wikipedia and i i forget if this is true or not but i remember i remember when assassination classroom was uh just beginning and you know when it's in the early stages of its serialization that like that you know, it like it, it didn't take a long time for, you know, copies of the manga to reach one million in print. Yeah, no, it was like its first volume hit the floor running, like in a way that I think only like the big three as much and we can as much as I think only the big three and Hunter really did the same thing. That I mean, I'm not talking so much about their current sales. I mean, like basically out the gate they were hits. Like a lot of series, a lot of times, even with Jump as big as it is, a lot of series usually take a little bit of time to kind of get their footing. And, you know, you know, they're usually not that impressive unless it's by, to be fair too, though, Matsui is kind of a Jump veteran. So, I mean, he already had, even though Nero did, and that's funny to think about it too, because Nero didn't do the num anywhere near the numbers Assassination Classroom did. But, I mean, people knew of him before that and then i mean and then he did a couple one shots after neuro so he was keeping his name out there in circulation so coming back to jump again yeah but even even with him being a veteran he wasn't like an oda or a kishimoto so like he came in and just assassination classroom from the very beginning was just like hugely successful so I mean, again, it's like I mentioned earlier, you know, Viz wasn't going to even, it, I remember reading specifically, like, somebody was, I think I heard fans asking, hey, Viz, are you going to get this? And I remember, I kind of think I remember them saying, you know, because the subject me, 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 uh, the subject matter, they didn't, they were kind of uncomfortable with it, but I guess it got to a point in Japan that it was so big that they just realized they had to. I think another thing that definitely like tipped their hand on that is that Assassination Classroom got an anime. And so the anime was going to get picked up for sure. So they thought, well, if someone's already going to bring out the anime, we might as well also bring out the manga around the same time and time out the release for just when the anime hits. So their release of the Assassination Classroom manga, Volume 1, hit shelves in December 2014, and the anime began in January 2015. So yeah. they uh. had some synergy going for that. Yeah, it just, I don't know. I mean, I'm I, I'm sure people, there are still people out there that are fans of it, but it just, it just feels like Assassination Classroom's popularity is mostly, like, it, it feels like it came and went. 
I don't necessarily feel that way. I mean, in the in the sense that like it hasn't been kept in the public eye as much because like with something like Naruto, we have like spin-offs, we have Boruto, right? Like that's been kept yeah. alive. But Assassination Classroom, it doesn't have like a sequel series. It doesn't have like as much follow-up. But I don't feel like it was a flash in the pan. I feel like it's definitely going to be remembered, especially by the generation of kids who read it in Jump. And like, it's going to still be remembered as like one of Jump's best in like the future. But like, you know, because there hasn't been like a prevalence of follow up material, there just hasn't been as much discussion around it. Because Naruto, everyone is still talking about because, you know, there's something for people to remember about Naruto. And also it ran longer, too, so. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there is actually an Assassination Classroom comedy spinoff. Yeah, Koro Sensei Quest, and that is still ongoing. Yeah, that's still going. Actually, I don't know. It's weird because, I, I mean, you know, you invited me to be on, like, literally today. So it's not like I was just reading about. I don't know what made me decide to check on Koro Sensei Quest, but I did, and I was like kind of surprised to see it was still going. So, and I, and I feel like that probably is the big reason for that is is because Assassination Classroom was such a huge deal, and probably the um, authors were like, I mean, the jump was probably like, oh well, we can keep this going for a while to keep Koro Sensei kind of relevant. Because usually most gag spinoffs are, like, gone, like, after, I mean, especially after the source material is over. And for us Western readers, because we don't have Korosensei Quest, like, the manga in English, you know, it, we can definitely, like, feel like, oh, no one's talking about this as much anymore. But I'm, I feel like probably on the Japan side, because of that spinoff manga and because of, like, I'm sure there's, you can probably still find, like, Koro Sensei, Assassin's Creed merch whenever you go out anywhere. Like, I probably, there is some recognizability. There's, it's still, like, kept in consciousness in some way. But there's just not an occasion to really talk about it, like, in a way that will reach overseas fans and keep that conversation going. And we we just don't get those gag spin-offs here. Like, especially the manga for those very often. Uh, like, I, we have the Naruto gag spinoffs over here. Like, but even then, we only have the Chibi Sasuke manga over here. We don't even have Rock Lee's Springtime of Ute. We don't even, they, they never brought that over. So. Yeah, we don't have the better spinoff. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I agree with both of you. I'm kind of like in the middle of that where I don't think Assassination was a flash in pan. I don't really think that that was what Colton was kind of implying either. I think he just meant in in the sense that, yeah, it's going to be a series that's in the uh, consciousness of people, but it's not really something people talk about too much anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's it's around. Like, if somebody walks in a room and says Assassination Classroom, most people will know what they're talking about. Yeah. yeah. But it's not the kind of series that, you know, people are talking about all the time even after it's over. It's just, it's, it, and, and, and I mean, for the nature of the series, it kind of, it came and went, it came, did what it needed to do and went, which, which in one way, I guess if it had been like, if it overstayed its welcome, people would be talking about how it used to be good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so in a way, I guess the silence is a good thing. Cause like it did what it it came in did what it needed to do and left like a good and, teacher. And I mean, I'm yeah. not, and I, I think that's a good thing personally. So yeah, I know I'm not arguing that that was bad. I'm just saying no. Yeah, 
it, it, it's just probably that's part of the reason why people aren't talking about it because there's really not much more to talk about. I mean, you either read it and you'll, you know, you read it, you enjoyed it, it did its job and you would, you know, you might reread it and you might tell other people, Hey, you should read this thing. But generally speaking, I feel like series are talked about years afterward. Usually it's like in the sense of like, okay, yeah, this used to be good, but now it, and then it lost its way. And then, you know, I mean, there are obviously works where it's like people talk about them fondly afterwards. But I just think Assassination Classroom was just kind of like, I won't say quiet. It was kind of a subdued, not even subdued. I don't know what word, I don't know how to describe it. It was just a series that really wasn't, even though it was super duper popular, but it wasn't really in your face or anything. I guess it's the best way I can put it. Like, it sold a lot and a lot of people talked about it. Because even over here, even though it was popular, I didn't really hear anybody talking about it. I mean, I guess that's the Western condition. I didn't hear anybody talk about it until the anime came out. Yeah, I mean, because it wasn't running in the Viz Jump, and we had only just gotten the first volume, like, the month before. Exactly. I mean, like, because there are some series, like My Hero Academia, I feel like that was talked about when it was Scandalations a lot, like... Even before the anime, I feel like that was kind of a big deal. Not it, it, of course, obviously exploded when the anime started. But oh yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, but I feel like My Hero Academia, even when it was before Viz picked it up, and before I mean, before it was anime, and before Viz picked it up, I feel like people were buzzing about that before that. Because I mean, I know I was. I mean, it came around the time I I actually stopped reading Jump, so I only really knew about it because it was such a big buzz. But, like, yeah, Assassination Classroom, I feel like nobody really talked about it until the anime came. And then even after the anime came, it wasn't, like, a hot topic. It was kind of like, okay, yeah, this there's this series, you know, I'm watching this anime of this thing. And even now, I don't really know too many people that have seen the anime. Well, I, act, I think it did get a lot of buzz in the manga commu- reading community. like, But, like, the, the community that was reading the unlicensed, unofficial stuff. But, like, not... It, obviously, it wasn't being read by everyone who was reading One Piece or Naruto or, or Bleach back then. But, like, for... It was getting a reputation pretty early on from uh, people who, you know, checked out, like, various mangas. So it had an underground reputation, I would say. And then it became more, like, a widespread thing everyone knew about at, when the anime hit. And I'm sure, like... People, it was already building out a reputation because people had seen images of Goro Sensei, you know, even before then. So there was some awareness of it. And then the anime hit, and then people were like, oh, this is that thing where I've seen this character from. But again, the anime, I don't think was as executed as well as it could have been. So it was very popular, don't get me wrong. The anime was successful and people did really enjoy it, but I don't think it really hit as wide an audience as it could have been because I do think that there was some stunted directions, uh, some adaptation choices that limited its effectiveness. Mm, Though I I will say that, you know, from the little I've heard about both adaptations and, you know, from what little I've seen of both... I, I think I can confidently say that Assassination Classroom in the end, as far as like both of Matsui's works, I think got the better anime than Nero did, honestly. Uh, I would also say that there pro- there are other factors to why Assassination Classroom might have not reached as wide an audience. One, Funimation has a license for it, 
when it was uh, being uh, simulcast. So not as many people had access to Funimation as they do Crunchyroll, and it was only very recently, like within the last year, that it was added to Crunchyroll. And it is a pretty popular series on there now when it was added. Yeah, so the distribution also definitely probably limited that. And again, I think the manga was not like more like talked about because it was not available legally for the longest time. And Visit Shonen Jump never ran it at all. And I did because I definitely noticed when Food Wars was finally being serialized in the Viz Jump, there was a huge uptick in people talking about that because it was in the a legally available, easily accessible like uh, thing that you could get and read. But Assassination Classroom did not have that. Like the only chapters Viz ran in their jump were the extra chapters that came at the end of the series that was kind of a a little bit of a bridge to like promote the release of the movie and the climax of the anime. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the problem with Matsui's works is that like, I mean, uh, comparatively like assassination classroom is still, I think is still more like uh friendly in terms of its content than I think Nero was, but at the same time, like assassination classroom, while I think if it, if it weren't for like, the slight mature edge that I think Assassination Classroom has in certain places of like, you know, just just in terms of like, you know, like Matsui's sense of humor. Like, <laughs> I think one of my favorite things, and this is something that Matsui kind of did with Nero, is that uh, Matsui's like imagery is always like top notch. Yes. And um, yes. <laughs> there, uh, like, uh, let, let me put it this way, like any manga that includes uh, Elmo from Sesame Street being headshotted, I don't think is something that you could really recommend the children. Yeah, no, like, Matsui, uh, like, I don't, like... I don't think a series, I don't think a series like that could really run in the Viz jump. Like, there's just so much stuff like that, that I think unfortunately, well, I'm glad Viz picked it up eventually. I think it's because of, like, stuff like, stuff like that in the content of the series that I think probably that I think probably kept it from being run in the Viz Jump. That's just my opinion, though. Yeah, I mean, Matsui's imagery is always just amazing. I mean, like, I, I remember one scene from Nero where, like, they were doing, it was the furniture arc, mm-hmm. and, like, in the background, like, you know, Nero's talking about what desk he wants, and in the background is, like, two desks body-slamming, choke-slamming Yako, and that stuck with me because it's just such a weird thing that's there it's like it's only tangentially related to what he's talking about <laughs> but and, and, I, and it, I mean like <laughs> you know th- there's also stuff like you know um Irina's character i could see being a bit problematic yeah i mean in the yeah. this translation they do not refer to her as bit sensei at all like they rarely call her Ms. bitch either they refer to her by Ms. vitch so, they still they still use bitch in in the localization though from time to time from time to time but not all the time because in the when I was reading the scanlations like every time the students addressed Irina it was they called her bit sensei but in the Viz translation they mostly refer to her by this witch and only in the when it's clear that they are making a joke about the fact that her name can be mispronounced as bitch do they keep it in the Viz translation otherwise they just call her Ms. Vitch so 
they do censor that. They tone that down considerably. I honestly, I prefer that over how they treated, uh, say, like, uh, Hirama's dialogue in um, I Shield 21. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, I- I'm, it's not, I'm not, I wasn't always totally comfortable with them calling her Bit Sensei to begin with, especially considering what we learn about her backstory and how really messed up and sad it is like she it's it, it, it kind of is pretty sad that they they call her such a degrading name considering how much shit she's been through in her life so uh you know I, i'm not i'm not super upset that they you know toned it down in the viz translation I mean, I think it was a, I think it was a pretty good trait. I, I mean, just uh, to be fair, I haven't really read the English version. I think I have like volume one somewhere, but I didn't get more, and now I feel like I should. After this, I think a reread for me is in order. And now that Comicsology messed up my Jamazon Japan thing, might as well use it. <laughs> but, but yeah, I, 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 because I did read the Japanese manga, and yeah, it, it it's, it's kind of weird. Because I feel like, in a way, the fact that they translated it that way kind of calls it out more than the original really meant it to be. Like, it's clear that sometimes the kids are just messing with her. But I feel like in the Japanese version, it's just really a thing where it's just like, we really just can't pronounce her name and it sounds like this thing. So we're just going to keep calling her that because it's easier. But, like, by changing it in the Viz translation, then they made it seem more like a thing where they were being malicious on purpose. I, I, I mean, that's how it comes off to me. I'm not saying that that's how what Viz did on purpose or whatever, but it's kind of like pointing out this thing that nobody noticed. And then, like, you, you point it out and you change it, and then that's when people notice, oh, well, wow, that's actually kind of It's kind of like, it. <laughs> it's, it's kind of like when uh, Dragon Ball Kai aired on CW and they painted Popo blue when it's yeah. like, you're trying to cover up the problem, but it's like, you're just, you're just emphasizing it more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Cause like in the Japanese version, they call their Miss Bitch because that's just, I, I mean, I think they explained it. It's just like, a pronunciation a, thing, right? It's, yeah. yeah. It's a pronunciation thing. Cause like in Japanese, there's no V really. Everything that most things that are pronounced with a V come out as a V as a B. Yeah. <laughs> so that's it wasn't a thing like again, there were times where they were calling her Miss Bitch to be, well, bitches. <laughs> uh, I think a big difference is that in Japan it's not like as bad of an insult it's because as soon as yeah. like it's, it's kind of like an amusing like oh this is an english insult and it's funny thing but like here it, it was it was definitely going to raise some problems especially with parents if like they were reading a manga where a female character was called miss bitch like every page as opposed to them being you know totally okay with the uh with the premise you know well even then <laughs> i mean that's why they held off for so long but like they can i think they got away with it and they can get away with it because it's such an abstract premise and like we said ultimately the series has like very positive messages and very constructive messages that are like teaching you to be a better person I'm kind of surprised at this point, like, there hasn't been some kind of, there hasn't been, like, a library in America yet, where, like, one of the librarians picks it up and goes, 
what's this manga about a students trying to kill their teacher? Oh no, I'm getting this banned from my library. I think it's just because you can read like Assassinated Classroom and like very quickly you can see, oh, this is not meant to be taken seriously, this idea of them trying to kill their teacher. It's also not meant to be actually violent because they don't shoot like bullets. They shoot BBs that are meant to kill this octopus alien monster thing. So it's like, oh, this is fan. This is the realm of fantasy violence. This is not like real violence. That goes back to what we were talking about earlier about how, um, for such a like, um, I guess as far as like Western sensibilities go, as as far as like the premise goes, like, I mean, I'm sh- I'm sure like Matsui probably didn't have you know Western readers in mind, you know, while coming up with the premise for Assassination Classroom and you know actually like creating the series, but like. That's one of the things that makes the series work over here is that obviously the the subject matter might be a bit touchy for some people, understandably so, but it's like you could pick it up and read it and still realize, well, hey, like like what we were saying earlier, this isn't a lot of the stuff isn't like super imitatable at all. And like yeah, yeah. And the students use weapons that like clearly cannot harm other human beings, which I think is a, which I think is a very smart move by Matsui. They're never taught to actually kill people. They're only taught assassination techniques to specifically kill Koro Sensei, but they're they're never taught or shown to kill human beings mm-hmm. yeah. at any point in the series. And that is made an explicit fact that they are not, and that is not what Koro Sensei trained them to do. Yeah, I was just about to say Matsui goes through very painstaking measures to illustrate that this is only to kill Koro since I mean he explains the weapons very very like I mean in, in some other series they would have kind of glossed over it like yeah these these bullets they just won't affect humans but I remember Matsui going through painstaking detail <laughs> as to how these things are made and how they won't affect humans so and that was a really good move on his art. So anybody that could, would want to be complained, he would assassinate that complaint. <laughs> so because <laughs> because there's no way. I mean, because it's all right there. You would the only way you could complain about the series being you know violent or bad for kids is if you didn't read it. If you just read the title and the premise and, and basically the, just took a look at everything at like face value, like oh that that kid has a knife. Oh, I don't want my kid reading this. Exactly. <laughs> if you actually read it, then it's like. Like anybody that actually sits and reads the thing properly would be like, okay, yeah, no, there's no way that, you know, th- this is clearly not trying to get incite kids to do anything that they shouldn't. And plus, Koro Sensei being big and goofy helps too. Like, yeah, <laughs> I mean, he's just like, yeah, I, and, th- and that's another thing I really like about it. Like, he just he, he looks. He doesn't even really, I wouldn't even say he really, his look is like, first of all, it's marketable. Let's put it like, let's be, <laughs> no, I, I mean, I mean, like, no, like, I, I understand what you're trying to say, but it's like, I mean, that, that's totally what Matsui was going for, I think, was that, you know, it's, I mean, look at the covers yeah. of the manga. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> look at them. <laughs> like, <laughs> It's it's clearly like I can on one point I can imagine Matsui just being like I want to come up with something bizarre for his teacher because like yeah if he had made him a human teacher then there's no way they could have gotten away with this premise even in Japan I'm sure yeah. <laughs> so but the fact that he's a big goofy octopus creature then it's kind of like oh that's not nearly as bad. <laughs> 
They're trying to save the world, so violence is okay. Yeah, I mean he's yeah. he's an alien. I mean I like and I like and I like that too. He looks like an alien, but the one of the first thing Coral Sensei says is like, "I was born on Earth. I'm not an alien." That's such a great like little bit of information uh, on the side there uh, that becomes like a very important distinction later on. Is that yeah? They keep adding on details and hints as to like what Coral Sensei was originally and just they keep like sprinkling little hints as you read on in the series like the next elaboration we get is during the like school school trip arc where Kurosuma asks her sensei hmm you had a lot of uh dates once huh was that back when you were human and Kora Sensei doesn't like say anything, doesn't like corroborate what Karasma is saying. But like they throw that idea out there. Maybe Kora Sensei was once human. And then when Itana shows up, that's when Kora Sensei is forced to reveal I was once a test subject. And by that point, the students are like, well, we kind of figured that out because you're not an alien and you can't have been like a naturally existing creature because there's nothing else like you. So I guess the test subject is all you gotta be. <laughs> yeah and i like that a lot of the information is just like like it isn't done by data dump which that's really nice like Natsui finds a way to integrate this information about coral sensei in a way that it's like it feels natural within the series they were not stopping to you know have like a whole arc where he explains his back so i mean like he did that happens later but by that time we've got so many hints and clues and things that it's just kind of like Okay, now you just have to tell. We already kind of know. We just need the rest of the information. Like with, with, um, Nagisa's notes, like of his weaknesses. That's such a clever way of kind of like building up what Koro Sensei is or what he might be without just sitting there and having like a multi chapter flashback. When the flashback came, it felt less like a lot because it was so close to the end of the series. If it felt necessary at that point, exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. That that actually that the Colton hit the nail on the head there. It, it felt necessary at that point, so it didn't feel like a lot of information because at that point we were just like, okay, we need to know this now. Matsui's kind of like, okay, at this point I've gotten to a point where I have to tell the audience. I can't, you know. Like, it's not like some series where it's like, yeah, I'm just going to throw a bunch of information on you, and then you can kind of sort it out later or whatever. Like in Tama. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was a, yeah. It was a very focused flashback because we had so much groundwork laid for oh, hints of, like, what went on in Course Sensei's past. So seeing the flashback, we now just got confirmation on things we already suspected, but also we could focus very clearly on what the focus was, which was the relationship between him and Augury, and seeing that develop, because that was the linchpin of Koro Sensei's motivation of why he wanted to teach Class 3E. So we got to see how that relationship developed, why he grew to care for her, and how she influenced him to become a better person and to want to take up the mantle of the teacher of the assassination classroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's a, just a great sign that Matsui really did have, you know, his entire story planned out. I mean, he had his shit together because it's the only way that whole entire backstory for keeping that, – that, that's the only way that flashback would have worked is for somebody – who knew exactly what they wanted to do with it. 
So, so there was no, ah, dang. Okay. Now I've got to kind of start thinking about, you know, maybe I have to start thinking about Coral Sense. No, I can imagine like before serialization began and Namatsui already knew what Coral Sensei's past was going to be. It was just a matter of getting to that point. Um, so I, I guess while we're, we're kind of already into it now, but, um, I'm I'm conflicted because it's like I don't know if we really I don't know if I really want to talk about every single character because like there's so many characters obviously in um in class three there I think what are the, what is it there are like 28 students yes and yes. Uh, yeah so I guess um I don't know are are there any characters you guys like want to talk about in particular at all I guess well obviously the most important characters are. In terms of the students are Nagisa and Karma. Nagisa is, of course, the main character, and he's a slow burn of a protagonist because he's passive a little bit towards being outside the first chapter, where, you know, he's just kind of the narrator and observer. He watches and he comments on the lessons Koro Sensei is teaching and how other students are behaving and what their strengths and weaknesses are. And so while he serves a role as a narrator, we're also kind of building up that he is very observant and he is very skilled at understanding people and like recognizing what is going on and so that does very pay off in terms of when we finally get a climax to that or like a our first like big development for him when uh, Takaoka comes in for the first time when he replaces Kurosama as their PE teacher and where Nagisa's skills as an assassin the fact that he's so unassuming that he doesn't stand out but he is so quiet and so uh, skillful in terms of executing uh you know very very surprising techniques and also observing his enemy and thinking through what he needs to do in a situation you know those problem solve his skills uh it really builds up his talent as an assassin and that he is the most talented uh and has the most potential of all the characters in the classroom to be like the most effective assassin and then that gets developed further on like as the series goes forward we get like more development on the fact that uh, why he looks so androgynous and we get more hints like the characters keep teasing him specifically karma and nakamura keep teasing him about his androgynous appearance and making him dress up as a girl and stuff and that gag is ultimately later revealed to be like an important part of his character because it ties into how his mother has raised him and how he she is trying to like work through her regrets in her life through him and that also involves feminizing him because she wanted a daughter to vicariously lips through, but Nagisa's a boy. Uh, so we have that explained about his character. And then we also have his meekness explained by that, by the fact that his mother is such a strong personality, so he can't, doesn't talk back against her because he's too intimidated. But he's become where he observed it because he's learned to recognize his mother's mood swings and when she flips off and when she, what sets her off in terms of changing emotion. And so that's how he cultivated that skill. And so a lot is built towards that and then that is like the explanation for why Nagisa is the way he is and that comes in at the same time as where Nagisa has realized you know I have a de developed these talents that make me a good assassin maybe that's what I should be by that point like you got to be sold as Nagisa as the protagonist because then he embodies this idea of like 
a who a character who could be an assassin who could be like the character that could most like reasonably take out Korosensei because he's so talented at that but then he's becoming a compelling character in his own right because we've seen so much development of him and he's been put more and more in the spotlight even though originally he was seemed like more of a background character he really had becomes like into the protagonist role by that point and that carries through is for the rest of the manga like he is in the forefront of like characters taking action and stuff and then karma is basically kind of the same in terms of like importance like except he has a more like distinct prominent role like from the get-go and then Izar kind of carries through naturally. And so they, those are the two students that get like the most development consistently throughout the course of the series. And then we have other characters who are important. Uh, but I, I like the trio that like is in the older promotional materials that like are emphasizes the main characters are Nagisa, Karma, and Kayedi. And of course, Kayedi is like even more than Nagisa, she feels like a background character through like most of the series, but you have hints of that there's more to her, like especially in her like character focused chapter, like the pudding chapter where she carries out her own assassination plan. And of course, uh, uh, Matsui had put in like very clever Easter eggs that she had tentacles, like through small like slips and panels in that chapter. In when Yanagisawa sh- was first introduced with Itana, like he had those like Easter eggs that she had like tentacles behind her, hidden in her hair, like in those panels. So there was he had a clear idea of like what, who, what kind of character she was and what role she was gonna have in the story. But like only when it came time for her to reveal like her true identity did that like really come out and like she became a prominent character and we got all that development for her but then it feels like yeah she has a clear arc and that carries through to the end so i mean those are the three important characters well i, I kind of want to go to uh, go back to nagisa for a second because um i, I was kind of thinking about it today as i was like kind of finishing up the series and that uh, Nagisa has a really interesting arc that doesn't get touched upon as much, I guess, until we get to kind of learn about his... I mean, we, we kind of get hints here and there, but, like, it really isn't until we we finally actually get to meet his mother on screen that we kind of understand what his home life is like. But I guess even then, we, you know, we, we had hints here and there. Yeah, like, we saw know, that yeah. his parents seemed to be separated because we had that scene where he met with his father and his father asked like how his mother was doing and stuff. And so you got a sense there was some like unrest in Nagisa's like home life. So there was something going on between him and his mother. Yeah. And um, I think there was, a, there was a little, there was a little bit of dialogue in, um, uh, I guess d- during during Takaoka's first arc, where Nagisa literally says, "You know, no one in my family looks me straight in the eyes when they talk to me." Mm-hmm. He, and even like as far as the beginning, when um, you know, he's kind of down on himself because you know he's he's sort of um, I'm not sure if you want to say jealous. He's not assertive, but like well, I was is... gonna say when he he makes a point of how like oh you know everybody's after Koro Sensei because. He's an actual threat, and in a way, they kind of respect his power. Where, like, you know, he kind of feels down because he con- he constantly like compares himself to Koro Sensei, wishing that like, it, b- basically wishing he had some kind of worth. Yeah, yeah. Which, which, like, lo- looking back on that moment and 
kind of thinking about how it relates to his home life, I think, make for a very interesting character arc for him. Yeah. Which, you know, by the end, we see that, you know, basically Nagisa's parents think about, you know, like getting back together and whatnot. And it's and, and it's such a little moment, but it's so, like, cathartic. There's such an amazing, yeah. And there's such an amazing line, too. Like, how deep is the legacy of what our teacher taught us? Something to that effect. That's yeah. like, man, Korosensei did not just teach them, like, practical skills for, like, surviving the education system. Like, he... He, like, really changed their lives in dramatic ways that, you know, continued after he's gone. Like, the results of that continue to live on in all of his students and how they live their lives. How big is the legacy our teacher left behind for us? Just such an amazing moment that, like, speaks to, like, just how powerful the influence of one person, like, the positive influence, like, one person can make in someone else's life. It's just amazing i mean it's because of koro sensei that you know nagisa is able to like stand up to his mother and basically become his own person uh there's such a great metaphor during that part of the series where basically like you know nagisa feels like he feels like he's not even his own person like he feels like he's being controlled by another person like in a video game he's his mother's second life that that was another great use of Matsui's imagery. Yeah, it was a really good sense because I remember those scenes pretty vividly that he was talking about how he's just basically a video game that his mom plays rather than being her son. So like that was really it, it was it's it's funny in one way, but it's kind of sad and relatable in another. It's so depressing. I thought it was very disturbing, and it was like when I re- I remember my reaction when I was reading for those chapters for the first time, and I was like, wow. Nagisa's home life is so messed up, and but in a way that was scary to me because I could totally believe it. I know that there are people who treat their kids this way, who treat them like extensions of themselves and are trying to like live out their, the life they wanted through them, but, and robbing their children of autonomy. And it's like, oh my God. See, I think the genius of a lot of the like antagonists forces in assassination classroom is that they're rooted in like real world like dangers that children face yeah yeah takaoka really scared me because like you know he he's he's this guy who like you know he acts sweet to all his children or whatnot buying them like candy or whatnot telling them like how good of a job they do always praising them and then in a very very scarily realistic abusive fashion Basically, when it when it comes time for him to like be able to control his children, he he uses those good deeds against them. Like, hey, I'm your father. Like, think about all the good stuff I do for you. Why won't you do? Why won't you do this for me? You have to listen to me. Like, that's scary to me because, like, I mean, there are parents out there that are like that. You know, I mean, just as a kind of funny aside, I, I, I was just kind of reading up a little bit on the series since it's been a while since I read it. Guess who his voice actor is in the Japanese version? I actually don't know. <laughs> Takaoka, it's All Might. Oh, wow, that's, that's, that's pretty screwed up. <laughs> Ken, that's Kenta, it's Kenta Miyake who plays All Might, and also... um, um Abdal. Yes, Abdal and um, um, Jojo. But yeah, just... Yeah, I remember his episodes a lot, and he... 
Not, I mean, the reason why I bring that up is because his voice actor, at least, I've never seen the dub, but his voice actor in the Japanese version was really convincing, too. He sounded very sweet and very nice, and then when he started going on his rants, like, I, I, don't, I don't remember what he said, but Miyake's voice acting was just so good there that I remember just how he was able to flip that switch and go from sweet to terrifying. <laughs> mm, I, I can't wait to get to those in the anime when I eventually do. Um, Justin Cook is pretty great in the dub, too. Mm. Justin Cook plays him in the dub. Yusuke from Yu Hakusho. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, yeah, maybe I have to sit with the dub at some point. But yeah, Trying that... to see what other uh, fodder figures he might have played, but uh, I mainly know him. It's Yusuke. But yeah, <laughs> but uh, I mean, character wise, I have to say Asano, the, the dad, yeah, the dad, which is Umi Bozun Gintama, by the way. Ah, <laughs> oh, show Hayami. That, actually, yeah. that's pretty perfect, honestly. <laughs> so, but yeah, um, he was the one that really stood out to me the most because, like, Matsui presents him as this guy that you know. He seems so very evil, but then, like, when they get to his backstory, then it's like, I, can, I, I remember having a very distinct opinion about him, which is I didn't like him. And that, and that takes a lot for me, because usually I'm just kind of a spectator when I read or like, but before watch stuff. Or after his backstory. Before, before his backstory, I really didn't like him. Like in a level, like I, I, most of the times, I'm like a spectator and stuff. I just like, okay, I understand his character, but I don't feel anything towards him. But I actually didn't like Asano because it's just like, wow. I, I like, mean, he leaves such a disturbing impression. Exactly. Like, from when you first meet him, he's like meeting with Koro Sensei, and he's smiling and acting all friendly towards him, but still letting him Koro Sensei know that he's at the top. That like his employment is in his hands. And he should keep his students in check and make sure that they don't show up class A or stand out because that is the point of class 3E is that they are the failures and the laughing sauce and they need to be kept down for the rest of the pack, the more talented to succeed. And so he says all this to Kurosensei pretty much and then he walks out and Nagisa has overheard all of this conversation, everything that Asano has told Kurosensei and he just looks at Nagisa and he smiles and says, oh, hey there, young man. Good luck on your midterms. He, sm he gives this fake smile and then he immediately reverts to his cold, stoic expression and then just walks away. And it's just so chilling how he's able to flip on a dime like that and portray this fake false nicety without any sense of shame because he thinks people are just so beneath him that he it isn't even feel like it's worth being genuine to them like that disregard that contempt for like the people beneath him is just so horrifying especially for like the principal of this institution and the guy who's like responsible for like the future of these children like the fact that he's willing to throw them under the bus and throw them away just because he thinks they're worthless. And what really makes it terrifying is not even all of that, in my opinion, but the fact that it works. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not. It's one thing if he were just a bastard and all the kids turned against him, then it's like, okay. But the fact is it worked. He basically took one class. And it was like he basically just took class. And he was like, you see, everybody, you could be them. And it worked. It motivated everybody. It motiv and for that's ten what years, it worked. 
we we know this in the lore of the series that ten years he's been running Kanoki Gaka like that, and it, it this system has been working all this time. It's only until Korra Sensei was able to make Class Three E into students who scored within the t- as the top fifty high scorers on the final exam that like his system was like shown up. But like his his teaching methods are effective in terms of like producing results and that what makes him so terrifying and such an effective foil to Korra Sensei is that he is an effective educator. We see that like he's able to brainwash students to in order and motivate them into like having such hyper focused mindsets that they overperform. In exactly three minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He just talks to people and they and he bends them by talking. Like he doesn't do anything physically or I, I don't even know if the guy really threatens per se as much as he there's only one moment in the series where we see him like physically threaten and scare students into submission where after like asano's like foreign buddies after the capture the pole competition that they did like principal asano is like chastising gakashu his son and he's saying you failed like even though you had a size advantage and you had a numbers advantage you're a worthless failure. And like his foreign buddies are saying, no, hey, lay off him, man. As a father, you should be supporting him and telling him to do better next time. And so he says, well, do you want to test me in a test of strength? And he goes all four of these like big, beefy foreign kids who are like way bigger than him. Way They look to have made more muscle than him. But then in like a minute or something, he has them all into submission and begging for their lives and begging forgiveness. And he like coldly reveals like his backstory that he went to study karate. And on the first day, he was beaten by his, a black belt, you know, a black belt karate instructor. And he was so aggravated and angry at that last that the next day he just sat and watched the instructor as he fought. He did not do any like fighting that day. He just sat and watched with hyper focus determined that he would not lose again and he studied the instructor's moves throughout that entire day and then on the third day he fought the instructor and beat him in a humiliating way and then every day after that the instructor kept challenging him and challenging him and he beat him worse and worse and worse and that's how he became incredibly strong and like the super black belt in just one defeat and in the course of three days he became a black belt and a master of the craft is just like that motivated and that skilled and be- he has so much of a grudge and drive that he is able to go the extra mile in order to make sure that the people who have humiliated him and have shown enough suffer the most and like that that is what makes him incredibly terrifying is that he is so skilled and so spiteful yeah, it's such a level of petty that he's pretty much petty incarnate. Like Principal Asano could be like if like if he were in the world of Star Wars, he would be the Sith Lord. Like easy. <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> I mean, he's so outlandish that he almost feels like he fits more in Nero than I know there were, there were times there were times <laughs> Honestly, like yeah. Yeah, uh, to me as Principal Asano 
was the main antagonist of the assassination classroom for most of it, in my opinion. Because he was the creator of this class 3 system. He was who they were fighting against and who they were trying to show, no, your ideology is wrong. These kids can be nurtured to succeed. They have value. They have talents. And then your way of thinking, your way of pushing down the weak to propagate the, to push up the strong is a flawed ideology. And they had to really struggle against that because Asano's ideology was producing results and he was so good at his job and he had so much power and he was so manipulative that Koro Sensei could not really do much against him if the principal really wanted to have his way. But they had to outwit him. They had to play his own game in order to defeat him and prove that he was wrong. And ultimately, I think I, what I love about Principal Asano is that... I, I think what I love about the this classization classroom as a series is that Koro-sensei sets out to improve the lives of everyone he encounters. And that includes Principal Asano. Like, he wants to help him grow as a person, too. So that is what he ultimately is able to do in their, like, final battle of wits. When Asano, like, furious that... Class 3E has scored all in the top 50 of the mid-tiers and shown up Class A. And to the point where, like, that Class 3A has rejected his teachings. And they stand by his son and says, you know, we're sorry for failing you, Asana. But, you know, if you really feel like we are not worth it, please send us a 3E. Because we think we will learn better there. And that makes him lose his control and slap his own son. And it's like... Make him ricochet around the classroom, too. <laughs> yeah. And it's, and it's just like that moment of him losing his control. This guy who is so good at controlling his own emotions and per- having this mask of fake kindness that he displays outwardly while hiding his true malice within himself. Like, the fact that in that moment he, like, explodes in, ang- explodes in anger while, like, still having the stone face of shock. He just, like, slaps his son through the wall. And then after that, he, like, comes up with what it is, like, an incredibly effective strategy to take out Koro-sensei. Like, reading the volumes, Ma- when Ma- Matsi was, like, put in a note of, like, what were the three most, like, uh, ex- almost successful assassination attempts, and Asano's was, like, number three of all the attempts in the series, because he taught it out so meticulously, and it could have really worked if Koro-sensei had not memorize all those workbooks in preparation for that final exam but like that level of pettiness that he was willing to destroy the class 3 building and he was pushing Korosensei into this position where he would kill himself and in the process class 3 would lose their bounty and they would lose their classroom and be expelled and it's like oh my god like the stakes were so high and he was just had so much malice in that moment but ultimately like Koro Sensei is able to outwit his own game, and like the, Asano is like so petty that he takes this notebook that has a, a grenade inside it that can kill him. He's like he flips it open and says, "You know what? I don't care about his. I don't care about my own wife. I will. I will like let myself die in order to spite you." But Koro Sensei saves his life and in that process he like kind of helps Asano realize that the mistakes you made in the past like they are what help you grow but you need what you need to do is to help the kids learn how to live 
And he makes a point about, like, something that Asano might have subconsciously thought to himself as he was making the Class 3E and, like, came up with the rules for the assassinated classroom is that, like, you know, I never taught the kids how to kill actual people. You never, like, agreed to let them kill anyone besides me. So you were, in your own way, still trying to, like, teach them to value life. So you, there is still something inside of you that wants to help nurture your kids. And there is still a shadow of the educator of who you once were. And then Asano kind of reflects on that and he does grow from that. And it's just really rewarding to see <laughs> like his per outward personality doesn't change. Like this kind of manipulative, like confident uh, character he has. But like he does become kinder and more supportive. And that is kind of rewarding to see. I mean, honestly, I think it says something about Asano in that basically after his tragic backstory and basically the thing that became the catalyst to like uh, essentially radicalize his entire like teaching philosophy. Yeah, uh, it was the death of one of his own students that changed him to this degree. He was like, I taught them how to live, but like what is well, no, it's not that like he was he was teaching them how to be a good student but i didn't teach them how to live and what good is that if they're dead so that's like what changes ideology is like i'm not going to teach them to be good students i'm going to teach them to be winners i'm going to teach them to not bow down to not be weak so they can be strong enough to survive so they'll be strong enough to support themselves and he thought of this system that would create what he thought would be the strongest students but it was also like a system that you know even though class 3 was made to be the scapegoats the purpose of that environment was that they would all be united in their you know struggle so they also would have a support network so they wouldn't also feel that they were so weak that they would kill themselves so in his own twisted logic he was creating an environment where students would be able to survive where they would have this ideology that they wouldn't feel that they were so weak as they didn't want to keep on living anymore which is such a like a tra- like his methodology is so harsh but it's rooted in something so tragic and like so sincere in the sense that he wants to save these kids lives he doesn't want to see another student of his die it's just ugh. it tugs in my heart and also is like wow ugh. so like asana is definitely like i definitely thought he was the really big antagonistic force for most of the series i also think he's like one of its most interesting characters um the the thing that really kind of struck me was that um because there, there's a there's a moment in where um around this point in the series where he comes across this just broken down unshaven homeless guy on the street and you know I guess he he and him have this thing where it's like Asano convinces this guy that like basically uh, gambling is like the most like uh is the most like rewarding thing you could do with your life like he convinces this guy to just keep gambling away his money. And then we eventually find out that this guy was the was the student back in the day who caused his student to like uh, commit suicide, and so to get get back at him, he convinced him to just keep gambling his money. Yeah, and ruin his life. That was his revenge. Is like he was he's ru he's going he ruined this guy's life in order to get revenge for the student that this guy helped kill. But he also he doesn't get 
like it's telling that like this revenge doesn't involve killing this guy yeah it involves like keeping this guy on a leash in this perpetual cycle of codependency towards asano giving him money so he can gabble it all away and live like so poorly and without any motivation and enthusiasm so it's like he keeps this guy in a living hell but it's also he's it's not he's this isn't a cycle that will kill this person so he is still afraid of he still he still is not willing to do anything that will kill someone of course he's not willing to kill him because he wants him to suffer yeah i mean he wants him to suffer which i mean honestly i think arguably is even worse it is even worse but because i mean yeah. like, i mean yeah. i clearly i don't think dude would be able to be make much of a teacher if he kills somebody essentially <laughs> yeah. yeah so i i don't see he's not i mean he's as you've said he's you know, he's not, uh, he's not one that really runs on, he let himself, he got, he was one that ran on emotion for a while, but then he kind of shut off his emotions. So he's got, he's pragmatic enough to know, okay, he's still emotional enough that I want revenge on this guy for what he did, but he's pragmatic enough to know, yeah, killing him isn't really cool. <laughs> so, but yeah, as you said, it's actually worse that he didn't, because I mean, at least if he killed, he would have put the guy out of his misery, but... That's actually kind of telling, that's a character establishing moment right there, that instead he he chooses to make this dude suffer. Not even really suffer, because the guy doesn't realize he's suffering. <laughs> yeah. He just is gambling. He's not thinking, oh man, I need to, you know, I'm suffering, I need to stop this. No, he thinks that... Basically develops an addiction. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't realize he's suffering. And um, Asano just keeps it, just keeps it on going, you know? I mean, so I I found his character to be, uh, if I'm to be for real, I think he's the better villain than the villain we got later. If, yeah. If if I have to say, I mean, we're jumping all over the place here, but if I had to say one thing that um Ass Class did kind of disappoint me in is like the final villain because it just felt like. Uh. Well, actually, I mean, so Yanni Gisawa as a character is not. Uh, that interesting as a i mean i think he's a perfectly fine character he's a I, fine character I, but he's, he's just fine, like he's a fine antagonist but he's not like he doesn't he's not like the foil that you're like oh my god yanagi sawa he he frightens me i want to see him like defeated i mean he's more effective than his shiro persona and how he like uh uses ichina cast him aside and like is lurking around in the shadows seemingly with all these contingency plans so he's more effective in that world than when his the reveal of who he was who he really is as Yanagi Sawa and being this like petty like asshole who abused a augury and is like just a complete piece of shit like scientist dude that was just awful like once that reveal happens you're like eh okay I mean he's an asshole I hope he suffers but like he I think he suffers quite enough i i, I think was, he does like oh my god the series ends with him like being like in a vegetable state he can't move he can't speak he, his mind is fully conscious but like he can't do anything anymore he people have to like assist him so he's like completely at the mercy of like just the people around him so it's perfect for someone who thought he was above everyone else and so much better than everyone else that he is humbled and humiliated like this it felt so good to see him it ultimately in the end fuck himself over you know once yeah. he 
injects himself with like the tentacle uh, molecules and whatnot. And basically, you know, because of that, if he didn't do that, he would have been able to get through the um, the anti-sensei like barrier just fine or whatever. But no, he just had to go and do that because, you know, he had to be he just had to give himself a power boost that again ended up fucking himself over and man i i, I love that because like as soon as i got to that page i was literally just like yeah good fuck you like <laughs> i didn't feel sorry for him at all uh it was just... i mean how can you his plan was like to threaten and potentially murder the students in order to make corner sensei vulnerable so that they could kill him easier so he he was an, he was the most evil awful person I'll I'll put it this way. I felt sorry for him for a second on the level of I would never wish for anyone, not even my worst enemy, to be in that like vegetable state because like I can't even imagine what that kind of life is like. But at the but on the same token, like I don't feel sorry for him at all because yeah, he was basically just a piece of shit. Like I really, I guess I agree. I kind of do prefer his uh, his Shiro persona, where it's like. Oh, look at this mysterious white cloated figure who could do magic tricks and is also a fan of Psyche Kusuo. <laughs> I, I feel like the design Yeah, I mean this design of Shiro with like his white cloak and like the beady like white eyes. It's also like just more menacing design than like his actual Yanagisawa like, human face. Let me ask this question to both of you then. Let me pose this. So, were you kind of disappointed in the reveal then, after when when, when Shiro's backstory was expanded upon and he was Yanagi Sawa, or was it just like, oh, well, whatever? He wasn't a character that I was super, like, invested in. I, I mostly just saw him as, he's the antagonistic force that sort of moves the story along as far as, like, I guess Koro-sensei's past goes. I thought, yeah, I mean, I thought his role in the story was good. I do have a problem with like his what we fought, see uh, learn about him in the backstory in the sense that it was just so overdone like how much of an asshole he is because he abuses Augury like we find out that he like bought his her father's company in order and in order to marry her and keep her under his thumb because he thought that oh having her around him would be useful for his career basically just, yeah. like he's such a he's such a He's such a terrible person. Like he, he torch he he delights in the torture of other people. He uses people like disposable pawns. Like he is just an awful monster. But like I think his role in the story works very well because he's like an antithesis of a teacher to Koro Sensei because he uses people without any regard for their lives. Like all the people he takes under his wing, like Ichina in particular, like he is just using them to an end without, like, teaching them how to live or grow or, like, functional life skills. Unlike Koro-sensei, who is, like, teaching his students how to live and be better people. So, Yanagi-sawa works in that role. Like, he's just another side to, like, that antithesis of Koro-sensei. Asano is, like, more directly and, like, the best version of that, but Yanagi-sawa also has that role and then like it is good that like like his role in terms of like facilitating the events of the story and being like the bridge for like a clear common threat uh, a human face to the threat against Korosensei in the final arc is good 
But ultimately, like, I, did, I wasn't as invested in the defeat of Yanagisawa so much I was the confrontation between Koro-sensei and uh, the second Grim Reaper, like his protege back when Koro-sensei was the Grim Reaper. And to me, like, that's what make the, makes the climax work so well, because here is Koro-sensei, he's faced with the a demon, like the shadow of, like, his failure as a teacher, like the student he failed, and now that student has grown up to be a monster and has lost sense of himself. And it's Koro-sensei's fault that this has happened because he didn't recognize how to nurture his talents. He didn't see him as a person back when, you know, he would, the Grim Reaper was his protege. So now he's turned out to be a monster. And it's just incredible loss of talent. And it's incredibly sad because it's all Koro-sensei's fault. And so now he has to protect his current students while fighting against his former student. And he has to take his former student's life. And it's just so heartbreaking. Like at the end, the Grim Reaper's final words are, I wanted you to see me. I wanted to become like you. And Koro-sensei is like, I know. Let's meet again on the other side. We won't make the same mistakes again. So I, I was incredibly invested in that because... The, what the Grim Reaper number two, what his protege represented in terms of Coruscant's character arc, in terms of becoming a better person, and how Coruscant has become not only a better teacher, but he has become more human as Coruscant than he ever was back when he was actually human as the Grim Reaper, and he's learned to appreciate and live life more, and learn how to see other people, recognize the work in them. And actually look at people and see them eye to eye. So it's like that entire thematic thread, that entire emotional arc was just so powerfully done, so brilliantly executed. So like I was completely satisfied with the final battle of Assassination Classroom and the climax. It was just done beautifully. Yeah, and I think the the Grim Reaper as a as a character, as a threat, as an antagonist was a pretty uh, I think it was an effective one. Because we we gotten a lot of buildup to the Grim Reaper, because, like, you know, throughout basically the first half of the story, like, uh, he's mentioned by um, Irina's teacher that, oh, you know, the Grim Reaper, you know, he's this big badass or whatever, and, uh, you know, he's I hear he's making some moves or whatever, and then we actually see him, like, take out a couple of assassins every yeah. once in a while. We take, it's, not, it's pretty brilliant how it's set up, because before the uh, Osaka trip, Lovro teaches them, you know, skills, and that's when the Rim Reaper is first mentioned. And then after Yasaka trip, we see Lovro talk with Korra Sensei over the phone. And then after that happens, like, the Grim Reaper assassinates Lovro. And then it's like, oh shit, like, Lovro, this guy who has been built up as, like, an amazing teacher of assassins, like, one of the most skilled guys out there, has been taken out just instantly by this Grim Reaper guy. He's the real deal. And then we just see him like, reappear again throughout a few more chapters. Like, we see him take out assassins we've seen previously in the series, most notably Red Eye. And then we there's, like, this great reveal to, like, actually his face reveal because we see it before we ever realize he's actually the Grim Reaper as he appears as, like, the flower shop owner. And that happens, like, way earlier than when, like, that reveal comes in because like the flower shop owner first appears like when the students mess up and break uh the the old man who runs the like uh, preparatory kindergarten school which by the way is probably one of my favorite arcs in the series actually oh, most definitely like uh like Coruscant's is like disappointment at them when they 
because they misused their assassination skills and they hurt someone in the process because they were reckless and like slapping them all in the face. Like, yeah, that disappointment he feels is just so cutting, so harsh. But then it turns into like this really moving, like, like li- life lesson story where like they're like, hey, we can use our talents to like help these people. And that's like a great use of our talents, like to help rebuild this school. Like, give these kids a great environment. Nagisa starts to learn that he might have skills to be a teacher when he's mentoring Sakura and helping her, like, learn some skills to, like, get over her, you know, fear of bullies at school. And it's just, like, such a, like, moving set of chapters. But, yeah, it's yeah, it's just a great section of the story. And then that, right after that, we get the Grim Reaper arc. And then we have, you know, the flower shop owner gives them a bouquet of flowers to give to Air so that like they can give it to Karasama so Karasama can give it to Irina, you know, for her birthday and stuff. But the, and then it's like we reveal, oh shit, the flower shop owner is the actual Grim Reaper. And then like when the students find that out, it's a great scene because the flower shop owner, the Grim Reaper, he walks right into the classroom and they continue on their conversation, like without noticing who he is and how, the fact that he's there. And then it's just amazing, like two panel double tickets. They're like, wait, wh- when did he get here? How, wh- wh- who hit what? And it's just, ah, oh, oh, like just the setup for his character was just so good. Yeah, it was definitely very, um, I like I, I definitely didn't see it coming and Matsui really uh weaved in that character very well but um uh I guess the point I was trying to get to earlier was um I'm conflicted in that like there was such great setup for the Grim Reaper and I th- I think you know a lot a lot of his fight against like class 3E and even like Karasuma I thought is probably pro- are probably some of my favorite fights in the series but I also can't help but feel like after all this build up like he it it seemed like I mean, like, you know, the the Grim Reaper gives them all a good fight, but I can't help but feel like they beat him, like, a little too easily. Like, it seemed like his his all of his tricks were a little too, too easy to kind of, like, overcome. But I guess that also makes sense in the context of the story and where, like, uh, the Grim Reaper, you know, basically tried to copy all of, like, Koro-sensei's moves back when he was an assassin. I guess to me, like, I'm conflicted in that I'm a little disappointed in how, like, I guess... I felt like it was a little easy to take him down, but at the same time, I could see the Grim Reaper, you know, uh, in the process of trying to basically copy all of Korosensei's old moves, you know, uh, that being, I guess, what kind of ultimately, uh, I guess, uh, led to his downfall. Does that make any sense? <laughs> no, I, I get that. I don't know if it was, like, too short, because the Grim Reaper arc is, like, one of the longer arcs of the series. It's, like, 12 chapters, which is, you know, pretty long for most of these arts. But, I mean, also, like, it's worth knowing that the Grim Reaper would have killed all the students. I mean, yeah. Like, it was a hard-fought battle. He would have killed Karasuma if Koro-sensei did not block that bullet to his heart. So, really, it was, a pre- it was like, a pretty life-or-death battle for everyone involved. And, like, it took the teamwork of all of them in order to survive. And it is... Also very important that, like, the Grim Reaper was not who he said he is. Like, the reputation of the Grim Reaper was Koro-sensei's back when he was a Grim Reaper. And Grim Reaper number two, the protege, he was basically, like, taking up the mantle and catching people off guard and uh, when they were not expecting him. But, like, 
when he's actually in a face-to-face confrontation, like, he doesn't have the skills to, like, take someone out like Karasuma, who is more, like, developed in that area, because that's not, like... I mean, that is an assassination skill, but also the Grim Reaper has very, like, human flaws in that he's careless and arrogant, and he isn't that experienced of doing these jobs on his own quite yet. He he doesn't have the experience Korosensei did. And because Korosensei did not refine his abilities, not refine, like, the Grim Reaper's abilities and, like, you know, raise him to be the best he could be, that also, like, led to his downfall because he, he, like, mastered so many skills, but he just got too overconfident in those skills and did not have the experience to back them up. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I agree with that. Like, Koro-sensei says, uh, I have the scene right now, uh, the person who trained him was a fool. With such impressive abilities, he could have made much better use of his life if he hadn't taken the wrong path. And Karasuma kind of comments on that, what if someone learns to make good use of their talents depends on the people around him. No, yeah, that was, I really like that scene. It's such great, like, foreshadowing almost. Oh, yeah. Oh, and get another line that kind of emphasizes why he lost. The assassin's skills are incredible, but he's overconfident and immature, and that's why he let his guard down. So yeah, the Grim Reaper protege was just not... He he was... His skills were not, like, he hadn't matured yet. And I mean, that he makes was sense, just too yeah. too desperate to prove something, to make a name for himself by killing... He didn't know even Coruscant he was a former teacher at the time, but he knew that he was the big target that everyone was gunning after. So he removed all the competition, and he was like, okay, I killed this incredible guy. I'm going to be the best. I'm going to show my former teacher that I was worthwhile, and I had what it took to become like a great assassin and then he will notice me and then he will acknowledge me. I I guess that's I guess that's what I was trying to say earlier was that like it, at, at first it kind of disappointed me that it turned out that like oh well this guy clearly isn't like as skilled as like everybody thought he was but I mean it makes more sense when you learn that like yeah, you know, the Grim Reaper used to be Koro-sensei's old protege and that, like, you know, he, he basically got ahead of himself and thought, oh, well, you know, I can just screw over my teacher and I can just take up the mantle and everything will be good from there. Yeah. I mean, he was just so desperate to prove himself to Corson's. And that's what's so tragic is that the reason he did that, the reason he went down this path is because Corsensei just did not acknowledge him, did just not nurture his talents and give him, like, the give him like the praise and the the compassion he needed as a young kid who was growing up and just wanted that validation wanted that respect and kind of like love that saying hey teach look look at what how much i've grown aren't you proud of me but like Cora sensei would never look him in the eye he would just smile and nod and say oh go oh that's nice go do this now and that just weighed on him and that just made him upset and he was like i I want you to acknowledge me. And so he went to such extremes in order to prove that. And it's just so tragic and sad. I mean, I guess it's a good thing he didn't end up doing that with uh, Nagisa. Because like we were saying earlier, Nagisa kind of goes through the same thing at the beginning where it's like, man, I really wish people would see me for me. And I really wish people would recognize like me or my strengths or whatever. I know. I'm like, that's what's so powerful about Nagisa. It's like a parallel to the Grim Reaper, because Nagisa is another character who has all the strengths and skills that would take to be a great assassin, 
And Korra-sensei is guiding him down, like, the path that is best for Nagisa, and giving him the attention and the love and the kindness that he needs as a young man, unsure of himself, and unsure of the, where the future will take him, what path he should take. And ultimately, he helps Nagisa realize that being an assassin is not what he really wants, and he thinks that what what he really would love to do, and what he really loves, what his skills would be really useful for, and what would be really helpful for would be being a teacher like Korsensei, like the person that he admires most. And it's just, oh, it's like the, how the, the Grim Reaper was inspired by Korsensei's assassination skills and he wanted to be an assassin like him. And then Nagisa thought that he wanted the same thing, but what he really was impressed with and what he really wanted to be like was a teacher like Korosensei. And it's just such a great parallel of like the different paths that they walked and like how Korosensei was able to learn from his mistakes with the Grim Reaper in order to help Nagisa go down a better path and all his students go down a better path. Mm-hmm. I guess while we're talking about the Grim Reaper, um, I, I kind of want to talk about Karasuma and um, Irina, I guess, as they're kind of relevant to the arc, because, um, man, Karasuma is so fucking badass. I love him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's so he's so awesome, but... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he has a great showing in the in the Reaper arc. Yeah, Karasuma's... He's interesting, like... I guess he is kind of like... I, I don't want to say so much he's Koro-sensei's handler, as much as he is just kind of like... I don't know, like, he he's... He's interesting in the sense that he's, like, the more down-to-earth teacher to Koro-sensei's kind of out-there-ness. <laughs> Like, I feel like they complement each other really well, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I, I really, I really don't, I really, I, yeah, you need Coral Sensei for this series to work, but I really think that having a grounding agent in Karasuma was a really good choice on Matsui's part. But he's basically the straight man. Yeah, he's the straight, I mean, and you need a straight man. But the funny, the great thing about Karasuma is, though, he's not, that's not just all he is. It's just, the guy that has to put up with the other guy, you know? <laughs> I mean, like, he is kind of like... I mean, I would have... Eh, I I feel like in the end, after everything, every after the entire series and everything, I, I am kind of, like, happy with where he was and how his development was throughout the whole series. Because, I mean, that could have been really a role that could have been delegated to the point that it wasn't necessary anymore but Matsui really did a good job of making sure that even his lessons as not as exciting as they were compared to Koro Sensei's were still essential for the students development mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like I don't think as much as Koro Sensei is the super teacher and everything I kind of like that Matsui still made it very clear that he can't do everything by himself like there and that Koro's that um Karasuma and um um Ilino were still very kind of they were they were essential for that class to run. Yeah, and I I like that about the series cuz it could have been very easily just Carl Sensei doing everything and then they get kind of shat, you know, he just overshadows them to a point that they're not in the series anymore. I mean, really, and that's something I wanted to say earlier when we mentioned the amount of students in the class is that for the most part Matsui did give 28 different personalities. And he did a really good job of balancing everybody so it didn't feel like, okay, yeah, Kaede, Karuma, and um, Nagisa were the three that got the most focus. 
but all the other class, it wasn't like the rest of the class was just ignored for them. Yeah, everyone was given a distinct personality, and we understood what their goals were and who they were as people. Like, even characters who you could say were sidekicks of other characters, like uh, Muramatsu and Takeya, I think? Like, the guys who hang around Terasaka. Like, we understand, like, what they want to do in the future. Then Muramatsu, he runs a ramen shop, he wants to inherit that in the future, and then uh, Yoshida has the motorcycle. Co- his dad runs the motorcycle company. So it's like he's going to work in that. So, yeah, you know, we understand like what their future goals are. So like we understand that for all the students. And I think he just did an effective job that he gives a moment for each of the students in the run of the story to like show off what they're good at. Like, a Muramatsu making, like, his ramen, he puts those skills to use when they're doing, like, the uh, outdoor culture festival thing, where it's like, they, they have, they put up their food stall in the top of Class 3E, and that's, like, his skills in making ramen come to use for that. Like, that's true for, like, all of the characters. Like, they all end up having, like, a useful skill that pays off in the story. Yeah, and I think we gotta give big points to Terasaka as well. Like, he... I, I think out of, like, the, I guess the, I don't know what you would call it, like, I guess the minor characters of Class E. I wouldn't the- say Karasaki is a minor character. I would say he had a pretty prominent role. Like, I, I, Nagisa and Karma are, like, at the top, but I would say that Karasaki is, like, one of the most important of, like, what you would consider the secondary cast in terms of the classmates. Because he did get, he, get a, he got a lot of development and a lot of screen time. Yeah, because, like, he really goes from, like, this guy who, like, can't be bothered to do anything. He just kind of want to, he just wants to coast through life, just pushing people around, getting them to do whatever he wants to, you know, to being, like, an active member of his class and, like, actually kind of giving a shit about the people around him and, like, actually kind of taking an active part in, like, you know, uh, the things going on around him. And I think that I it was a very, like, because I remember at first, you know, like, obviously... Because you know, as far as, like, the beginning of the series goes, he's the one that basically coerces Nagisa into basically, like, suicide bombing himself with Koro-sensei at the beginning, and he gets rightfully punished for that, um, or scolded, I should say. Um, and then, you know, he, at one point, you know, he sides with uh, Shiro and, and Itona because, you know, he feels like he's basically on the side, he's on the losing side of the battle trying to assassinate Koro-sensei all the time. And, you know, he figures, oh, well, I might as well start helping the winning team. And then he realizes, well, okay, this isn't what I wanted. Like, I didn't really want to, like, basic. I basically, like, you know, he was almost responsible for killing all of his classmates at one point, um, unfortunately. And then, you know, it, like, his, basically his arc leads up to, like, moments with, uh, like, with Etona. Like, you know, him and his friends are basically the ones that, like, snap Etona out of his, uh, out of his, like, lust for battle and winning against other strong opponents all the time um and whatnot which i think some of those moments are probably like some of my favorite moments as far as like terasaka's uh development goes i i I feel like out of uh, yeah like out of the most of the secondary cast like i think he probably grows the most but um so i'm i'm i know we're kind of going on long here but like there's still a few things i kind of want to talk about like with um 
I, I call her Irina because I just assumed that was her. That's how her name was pronounced. I don't know if that's well in the in the dub of the anime they pronounce it Irina. Okay, the, I haven't seen the dub, so I didn't know that. But um, I guess how do we feel about her character? Because I'm kind of I go very back and forth with her. I think she has a very compelling character arc, personally. I mean, I would I would agree, but I can't help but feel like you know she's. And in the beginning, she's presented as, as this, like, very professional, you know, female assassin who basically uses her charm and feminine wiles to basically assassinate her target, which, you know, I don't necessarily think there's anything wrong with that. Use what you got. But, like, I I feel like at some points, I can't help but feel like, and I guess it's probably because, you know, she's a lot younger than we're led to believe because she's... She's 20 years old, and she's been an assassin for 10 years. Yeah, and so, like, I I guess it's, I guess you could, like, point to her age, but, like, I can't help but feel like she, she's kind of delegated to the role of, like, butt monkey almost every once in a while, where it's like, oh, she's just kind of the butt of the joke. And, like, I can't help but feel like sometimes it, like, kind of degrades her character a bit. I don't know, that, that's just my opinion. Yeah, though. so, like, this is what I was saying before, is with how they were referring to as Bitsensi all the time, and how, like, I, I felt that I'm uncomfortable with that as, as the series went on, and we learned more about her, like, backstory and stuff, and why I'm, like, fine with the, I'm, where I'm actually pretty cool with the Viz localization for, like, toning that down a lot, is because, yeah, I mean, I feel like, she is used as the butt of a joke, like, especially in ways that exploit her, like, sexuality, in in ways that are, I, I don't feel are very great. They're, they're not very, uh, ugh, what's the word, thoughtful? Like, I, I don't think Matsuri really thought through, like, the implications of, like, he gave her, like, this very tragic backstory, this idea that she's basically, you know... had to be an assassin kill people since she was 10 years old and she's also like used her body like she seduced people had sexual encounters with people since that age as well and so when you're making jokes about like her body and her sick and like her and her sexiness and like calling her a bitch and And having her like actually french her students yeah it's just like i mean you understand like, in terms of her behavior, in terms of, like, Frenching her student, like, kind of her childishness, you understand that because she she is still a child at heart because she was never allowed to mature naturally because she was thrown into this world where she kind of had to, like, use what she had, what what she could do in order to survive, but she was not really able to grow out of, like, being a child and, like, become an adult in a normal way. So she still is has those lingering like childish elements those urges in her and then that's kind of something that she like matures through over the course of the series like she hasn't like in terms of like romance like she has not you know had to uh, she's not able to like understand how to proceed with those feelings because she's never had to actually she was never actually in love with someone like she is before Karasuna even though she's presumably had sex with so many people she's never actually loved anyone like she has for crossman so that's why she's so clumsy at that and so like she gets so like uh, embarrassed about it and goes kind of over and is willing to go over the top because she doesn't know like what's the right way to maturely like proceed with like romancing someone like crossman so it's like 
there's just a lot to her character. Uh, so like inter again to just like being used as jokes. I'm not. Oh, I was not always like happy about that. But in terms of her character arc, in terms of like how she developed like as a person throughout the story, and how like being in the assassination costume, like the influence of Kora Sensei and Karasuma on her, and the influence of the students on her, and like how she was able to kind of live out like her lingering like regrets of not be have being able to have a normal childhood and a normal life and able to kind of get exper- experience that and like have kind of a family for the first time in a long time through the students who like more than being students there were like little brothers and sisters to her so like she was able to have like a family again and then that really ha- and like she was able to like kind of open herself up get in touch with her emotions matures through those emotions more and then ultimately, like, at the end of the series, like, Karasuma's, like, able to tell her, you know, Erina, you're not suited for this because you care too much. You have too much empathy and you have, and you are too kind. So you should give up this life and you should do, do something else. And, like, I will help you do that and because I, I care with you. And it's like, oh, that's just a really touching, like, nice moment. And that also, I guess, ties into Karasuma's arc and, like, how he learns to, like, you know, at the when he were first introduced to him, like he prioritizes the mission and duty above like really caring about the students themselves or and or like Irina or Koro Sensei. But over the course of the series, like he is able to like you know care about their well being and like able to understand them and respect them and like respect their emotions and like not and not act in such like a callous like distant way towards them. He learns that with the students, like, b- before he does with Irina. Because he learns to, like, care- be more caring and uh, open towards the students, like, with the Tako- with the Takoka situation. But with Irina, he's he's still cold to her, like, when he's, like, giving her, like, flowers for her birthday that the students bought for him to give to her. Because he's like, well, this is going to be, like, the first and last time I celebrate your birthday. Because this is probably the only time we'll... Uh, be in contact with each other because after this job is over, we'll go our separate ways. Like, not understanding her feelings at all. But even though he is fully aware because he's not, and he, like he says, he's not blind. He recognized that Irina had feelings for him, but he just did not care because it was, it was not related to what the mission was. And he was like, well, it's unprofessional to like engage in a relationship that's not our goal here. She should, she's a professional. She should understand that. I don't care if she takes this hard or whatever. It's not my concern, not my prerogative. And the students have to like tell her later, don't abandon her. She is immature and she needs us and you as just as much as we need you, Mr. Krasma. So you need to be there for her. And so he's able to take a second look and say, okay, I was not, I needed to respect her feelings more and I needed to, you know, be, at least be a friend for her and be, you know, I need to be there for us in the same way I'm there for the students, you know. Uh, So I like that relationship a lot. I I feel like in any other series, I, I like... (sighs) I see. I feel stupid because I feel like I really misread Matsui's intentions with her character at first. Because, like, you know, alongside with Irina being the butt of the joke way too many times, and basically her sexuality being exploited for the joke so constantly, 
um, you know, along with that and, you know, the fact that, you know, you do have Karasuma at one point, you know, straight up telling Irina, like, hey, like, maybe the assassin's life just isn't for you. Like, you have too much empathy and whatnot. Like, I feel like in any other series, um, or at least in, in any other series that isn't as thoughtfully written, I, I feel like you could easily misconstrue that as, you're a woman, you cannot be an assassin, you have feelings. <laughs> yeah, it, does, does that make any sense? Like, I feel like in... Yeah, I can understand, like, in a different context, like, how that could be, you know, read as a sexist statement that, oh, because she's a woman, she's not suited to this profession. But it, that's not the intention at all. Because she's basically thrown into it from a young age. Yeah, it's also the fact that the assassin has just, like, really weighed on her mentally it has not it has really messed her up because she had to be doing this stuff for so young like she's was not able to choose a better life for herself like this and she was with and really hurt her her own emotions it was stunting her own growth and like her own happiness so being an assassin is not what makes her happy it has nothing to do with, like, whether she can do it or not. It's about, like, what will make her happiest and what she enjoys doing. And she does not actually enjoy that. It's just all that she knew. And it's not like she stops doing, like, work in that vein because she takes a government job uh, as a spy at the end of the series. So she's still, like, using a lot of those talents she had as an assassin, but she's not killing people anymore like she doesn't have to have that weigh on her conscience anymore and she can make the call to like use her body in a way that she is like comfortable with it's not like how at the beginning lover was telling her you seduce this guy you use your body you have sex with him in order to get close to him and kill your target you know now she has like she is able to make her own calls and she has developed the maturity and understanding of herself in order to know, like, what I'm comfortable with doing. This isn't, like, my only option. I know my other options, and I know myself and, like, what I what I want and what I'm comfortable with. Mm, yeah, so I, I, guess, I guess I'm just glad that, like, this isn't one of those typical shonen, like, oh, uh, well, you know, because she's a female character, like, oh, you know, it turns out, you know, she can't do this because of her, of those pesky emotions, like, you know, she, she still has a lot of really useful skills, and that, you know, it's just that, you know, it's basically the act of killing people that really weighs on her, and her maturity has been so stunted because of this. I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of glad she's still useful, I guess. Yeah, I mean, she continues to be useful throughout the series, like, in the climax, like, she helps the students break out of the cell that they're being but detained by fitting, in. But by fitting a bunch of explosives in her mouth somehow. <laughs> yeah. And and she worked hard in order to get to that point. She was spending an entire week, like, buttering up the guards in order to, like, in, get into that room, give the students the tools they needed to get out. And, you know, the, uh, like, the students, at the end of the day, they're like planning to go up to the mountain of the course and say they tell her miss vich you need to come there too you're you're our teacher you you should be there with us and she's like if you say and she like smiles and she says if she if you say so it's like ah oh man like she they they she is respected she is beloved by her students and the people around her you know so like the series was treating her with respect like at the very end and like the final thing that 
like the final major thing that she does, and even then, like you know, throughout the series, we see her have an active role and like use her skills to do things that were important. Like she she felt like a necessary char- character always. She never felt undermined in terms of like her abilities and what she could do. Like except like obviously Cora Sensei could outwit everything she was strong with her and of course there were times where she wasn't able to overpower people but like i've always felt like in terms of her abilities as like a professional assassin and like the skills she cultivated in that way and like being a team player and like helping like group effort events like uh the osaka hotel infiltration when uh when they had to go and get the like cure for the poison from Takoka and uh also you know the reaper thing and then of course final arc like she had a role and she had an important role in all of those yeah i i guess basically in conclusion i d- i didn't always think that matsui's handling of her character was you know necessarily perfect but you know she she's she still she still had her use in the story so I, I'm thankful for that. Her anyway. character development was extremely strong. Like as a character, she is incredibly well done. It's just uh, in terms of like her, how she's framed in certain jokes, it's just not well thought out. That it has like some unfortunate like uh, unpleasantness that I feel like uh, you should have thought some of these jokes out a little more, Matsui. But um, we haven't really like talked about karma at all. But um, and I mean, I, I don't really have much to say on his character other than I really I really enjoyed his introduction. Um, I mean, <laughs> I mean, at first, like, because, you know, Karma's basically like, I mean, Terasaka and his buddies are kind of delinquents. But like Karma in the very beginning isn't even there because he was suspended from class. Yeah. And throughout the series, Carmen ditches classes. So there are like several arcs where he is not there because he just didn't bother coming to school. Like, the first Takaoka arc, like, he was, he was not there. And that's how, like, they, they like, explain, oh, you missed that day. Yeah, I didn't like the teacher, so I ditched. <laughs> so, he, did, he, he didn't see Nagisa's skills firsthand because he missed out on that. And eventually, like, he comes to realize when he doesn't do well on the midterms that, oh, you know, I wasn't taking this seriously enough. Like, I am so, like, I'm talented and stuff, but... You know, if I don't apply myself, I'm not going to achieve the results I want. So it's like, of course, Sensei teaches him that. And, you know, he during the final exam, he's able to come around and, like, he gets, like, uh, amazing score. He become, he He's able to dethrone Asano. And it's like, yeah, like, uh, he had a good, like, arc in terms of that. In terms of learning not to look down on others and, like, also to... Apply himself. Apply himself. So, you know, that was also developed very well, like, in his... In his fight in the Asaka arc, where it's noted, Karma is not looking down on this guy. He's, like, looking him straight in the eye. He's aware of, like, his abilities. Like, for, like, Karma is really taking this seriously. He's taking something seriously for, like, the first time. So it's like, yeah, so Karma has a good arc, and uh, his relationship with Nagisa is very compelling, as we later learn. It's that they were, even though they, we see them hang out, it's like they're not really friends, and that's kind of explored later, like in the class civil war thing, where, you know, like the, the capture the flag banner, where there are two factions, Karma's on the kill course sense side, Nagisa's on the safe side, that cl- they ultimately dwindles down to them, and they have this great battle. Uh, at the end of it, 
they're like, you know what? Let's be friends. Let's understand each other. I'm going to call you buddy. I'm going to call you pal. It's like, oh, it's a good moment. Uh, it's, and I like the reason why they weren't friends before. is because, like, Nagisa felt like Karma was not interested in him because Nagisa was such a passive person and Karma had just this outspoken personality, wasn't afraid to be assertive and stand up for itself and get violent if he had to. Well, as Nagisa is meek and timid and doesn't like that kind of confrontation, but the reason Karma, like, kind of distanced himself from Nagisa was because Nagisa just had this air about him that was like, he was almost too pure in a way, in a way that creeped Karma out, in a way that made Karma, like, be on edge. And it's because there was just something in Nagisa that he sensed that that some skill that like made him intimidated and that just rubbed him the wrong way so he didn't like willfully hang around Nagisa much until like of course circumstances in being class 3e kind of made them cross paths again and start to like be around each other more so I thought that like backstory of the relationship was also really cool and like it's it's like developed pretty well uh, through the course of the series, as, like, Karma is kind of commenting, you know, Nagisa really has this unique talent, and I was, like, really kind of scared of him when I, he, he was, like, facing down Takaoka, because after he done that, like, most people would be, like, shaken a little bit, or, like, kind of be at, un, at unease, but Nagisa came down with a smile on his face, and, like, as if nothing happened. And that just freaked me out because the people who can do something like that so casually as if it wasn't a big deal at all, those are the people that, like, frightened me most. So, yeah. So Karma's, like, growing kind of inferiority complex slash a resentment towards, like, Nagisa's abilities was also very well developed. And that came to a head very nicely. As did, like, Nagisa's parallel. You know, he saw... Karma is someone, like, he aspired to be. He was, like, very impressed with and, like, you know, really looked up to. Yeah, and, like, Karma was frustrated because, like, Nagisa was looking up to Karma as, like, this guy. Oh, he's the best. Like, he's, like, he's he's so talented and, like, way above me. But not Karma was, like, you're just looking down on me because you're not, you're not really looking at, like, what I... What, what you're like is so self-absorbed that like you don't recognize like what you're good at and you're, you don't recognize like what I am seeing in you. And yeah, I think it, yeah, I think that relationship came to a head and developed really well. I mean, talking about karma, I do kind of like that this whole time that this guy that they're, they're such a weirdly odd couple and I kind of like that about them. Because, like, he's, like, the toughest kid in the class. And then you have the weakest kid in the class. The toughest kid, like, respects the weakest kid. Even if he would never come out and say, oh, yeah, I respect that kid. We should stay. I just kind of like that the one person that you wouldn't think that would acknowledge Nagisa is the one person who does. Besides Koro-sensei, of course. Yeah, like, at the end of the series, like, Karma is the one who says, Nagisa, in this assassination classroom, you're the best student. Because Nagisa is the best assassin of all the students in the assassination classroom. Whereas Karma was the best student in terms of academics in the assassination classroom. So it's like, both of them are, like, the top student in different ways in the classroom. Um, I guess as far as, like the ending goes uh do we have anything we want to say about the ending of the series other than 
it's amazing and it's good and it made me cry. I think we shared I, a lot of our thoughts on it throughout the course yeah, of the discussion. I mean, no, I think we did too. I mean, other than the fact that, like I said, I'm just really, really, I have to respect Matsui for sticking to his guns. I really do. Because I, they kept, they kept, like, when they went into space, and, you know, they kept coming up with these ways where I felt like, I when I remember translating it weekly, I was just like, yeah, they're going to save Coral, so they're going to find something in space and save him, and he's going to stay alive, and he's going to become human, and they're all going to be happy, and that's how the series is going to end. And right up until when he was fighting, you know, um, Yanagisawa, I still thought, okay, they're going to find some way to make this work. But he stuck to his guns in the end, and... It, it, I love how he kind of played the bait and switch with the next chapter, then Coral Sensei's back, but then it kind of like segues and he's not. <laughs> so- oh man, um, I think the moment that I mean, I, I I cried throughout like most of the latter half of volume twenty. Um, yeah, but um, what was it? I think the moment that like got me the most, or at least uh, when 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 the waterworks started coming. Um, actually was, um, was the bit where, um, you know, right when all of Class E basically ends up getting to meet up with Koro-sensei for the last time, you know, uh, Nakamura brings him a birthday cake because it's technically been a year since, you know, everything has happened. Uh, it's been a year since they became, since he became their teacher. And, you know, that was a whole thing in his flashback with, uh, Aguri was like, Oh, well, you know, I don't really know much about, like, where I came from or when I was born. Like, I don't know when my birthday is. And so Agri, like, basically gives him a birthday. Um, and, you know, Nakamura and everybody else basically go through the trouble of, like, buying him a cake and they start singing him happy birthday. And, yeah, that that, that was the first thing that got me. Like, holy shit. I had, to, I had to take a break from reading for, like, a couple minutes because that got me so hard. But then um, the other thing that, like, really struck me was... Um, I think it was when, it, basically around the time the final boss battle started uh, happening, um, was when, um, you know, while Koro-sensei is fighting the second generation Grim Reaper in his new horrifyingly tentacle monstered form or whatever, basically not even human, you know, Yanagi saw was basically going on like, basically just fucking rubbing it in Class E's face like, Hi, you're Koro Sensei's liability. You're his weakness. You should feel bad. Uh, you should. You you guys are all like terrible pieces of shit because Koro Sensei's gonna die because of you. And like you know, for a split second, Nagisa and everybody thinks, "Oh well, shit, we're gonna be the reason he dies." Like, and you know, Koro Sensei just kind of yells at him, like, "No, like, you know, like you basically they shouldn't feel that way, and that like you know that they're worth protecting." And yeah, <laughs> I mean, if there was anything that, like, really broke me, I think that was it. And I was gonna say, I, I guess aside from, like, the final kill, which, man, there was not a dry eye in the house. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I would have to say, though, as much as we were talking about earlier how the anime kind of missed some cues and everything like that, I think what really got me, besides the fact that the final roll call, because the voice actors... And actresses did a wonderful job. Again, I'll have to check out the dub, but the Japanese version, man. But the thing that got me the most, though, and I want to say, I really, I mean, Naoki Sato is the guy that did the music for the anime, and he's one of my favorite composers. But what got me at the end was like this song, and for days later, I was still think this song was still in my head. It was when they were all like talking about what they're going to do in their future, and they had this like really like 
it was a very slow song at first, and then it kind of builds, and then, like, triumphantly, when they're talking about their future and everything, and it shows all the students in different locations. I, that, that song, that's the, I, I had to immediately go get the soundtrack after that. I mean, I had to, I had to, like, get this soundtrack after hearing that song. I had no, I was like, okay, it's a good soundtrack or whatever, it's serviceable. But after I heard that song, I had to go get it, because, like, that song was stuck in my head for days afterward, and every time I thought about it, I would get kind of misty-eyed, because it's just like, this is it, like, <laughs> these kids have grown up, and I got to watch the whole thing, and now they're all moving on to their futures, and it's just that, and that music playing at that moment, ah, just thinking about it now, I still remember, and I haven't watched the anime, I haven't watched the last episode of the anime since it aired, <laughs> so, <laughs> and I still remember exactly what song, I mean, I have it on my mp3 player even because i love that song so much and i just remember that scene so vividly so even though the anime missed some cues or whatever naoki sato still he's one of my favorite composers and him being on an assassination classroom yeah oh man there's a lot of good music in that yeah anime man i i'm sure that final episode or i guess the episode where you know the assassination finally happens like i'm sure that's gonna fucking destroy me i'm Kind of looking forward to it and also dreading it because I'm probably not going to cry. <laughs> I'm not going to cry as hard because I'm going to see it coming. But it's like, well, I mean, I thought that I, I guess I thought the same thing when I f- actually finally read the ending of the manga. But like, I guess I was wrong then. So I don't know. I'm kind of afraid. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's good. I, I like I said, I agree with Sid that the anime did miss some like miss some cues because it was moving so fast. But they they nailed the ending. I I really think they did. They did a really good job with the ending. And uh I'm still just I and it was, you know I don't think of myself as a very like super emotional person. But yeah, just seeing them all grown up and uh, I felt I I felt like I was like their teacher, their parent. <laughs> like they were just a bunch of misfit kids on episode one and in episode fifty or so, like. They're all grown. They're going to college, talking about their futures, and, and it was just like. And then they had this really triumphant music. Like it wasn't sad music. Like Squirrel Sensei's gone. It was celebratory music that we found our future. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Squirrel Sensei lived on in all of them, and like the futures that they, you know, go on to make for themselves. So it is a very happy. It's a happy ending. It's an optimistic ending. Like everyone has a bright future ahead of them that they're working towards. Oh god, can I, I I should also say like one of the things that also kind of got me a little bit I didn't like cry, but like something I like I really enjoyed about uh the stretch of chapters was just the just the detail of like, you know, while Koro Sensei is like trapped in this like laser net barrier or whatever that he can't get out of, you know, after he's basically tried out all of his ideas, like he basically like there's no fear in his heart. Like he doesn't care what happens to him. All he cares about is finishing up the three hundred thousand page yearbook or whatever getting all their diplomas ready getting a getting a literal thick ass like guidebook for like the rest of these kids lives like he really he really makes most of the time he has like trapped inside the barrier um i also really like the detail in one of the omake pages in the later half of the volume where it's like 
we get to see the uh what was it the uh the contents of the diploma where it's like uh well a diploma isn't enough we have to have like a 256 gig hard drive usb which i don't even think they make them that big i don't know of like extra photos and uh, a bunch of other stuff and a little toy Kuro sensei car <laughs> like i don't even know how he made that i wish i had one of those there's just something so touching about how he basically decides you know what i'm gonna spend my time getting all this stuff ready for my students and you know making sure the classroom is in tip-top shape for when they return like that's that's just such a like that's that's just such a powerful little thing yeah like what's amazing about Korosensei as a character is that he does not fear his own debt like he lived that last year of his life to the fullest and that's why he had such a jovial like happy-go-lucky tone for all the series is that like he was living up life he was enjoying himself and like he was helping and these the students grow and he that was you know, making himself happy. So, like, he had, he made sure he to not have any regrets during that last year of his life to make sure that, like, he used that life to the fullest and that he would have a positive benefit on the world and the people around him right up until the end. Yeah, I'm going back to that scene where he's, like, trapped in the school and working on a yearbook. Like, this, this capper to that is what really got me. It's like, I'm a super creature after all. What do I have to fear? However, if I have one last wish, it's to see my students one more time. I want to see them. Oh, oh man. It's just like, uh, like Koro Sensei is just such an inspiring character because of how, like, he lives his life without any fear, without any regrets. Like, he makes sure to, like, have a positive impact on the world and the people around him. And it's like, He's uh, someone who, like, made mistakes through a lot of his life, and he turns it around, like, in this one year, and, like, leaves the world better than he entered it. It's just, oh, man. He's just, ugh. Like, Korosensei's, like, rereading the series especially, like, ah. Uh, he's one of my favorite characters ever. It's just, like, ugh. That's something I kind of forgot to mention a little earlier on the show is that that's one of the things I love about Matsui's works is that, like, he is so good at coming up with these, like, larger-than-life characters with so much personality with such an interesting design. Like, I mean, Nero is obviously, like, he was, I mean, obviously he's nowhere near as inspiring as Koro Sensei, but, like, you know, Nero was such a fun character and he was in, in how, like, surreal he was and you know, his obsession with mysteries and all that, and his um, um, his dynamic with Yako and whatnot. But Koro-sensei, I think, I mean, obviously, I think has Nero beaten that, like, Koro-sensei, I feel like he's either a teacher you wish you had, or he, he, he could be somebody that, like, people want to be. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with that. I agree with Koro-sensei, that. Koro-sensei, like, is, is kind of like the ideal of, like, the, the you should live your life to the fullest. Like, Koro-sensei has this line towards, uh, like, it's in volume 21, I think, it's like, Nagisa's reflecting that Koro-sensei never rallied against the classy system, said it was wrong and he would make the world change it. Like, Koro-sensei told him, the world is full of injustice. If you have time to waste being bitter or giving up, you had better have fun fighting against that injustice instead. And he taught them many ways to do that. Like, Koro-sensei was all about, like, teaching 
his students that like yeah the world can be an unfair and it can be a cruel place but you should live your life like we should not let that like let keep you down you should not let anyone like tell you to not live your life the way you want to and to enjoy your life that's the most important thing enjoy your life again that goes back to like uh how classy was like oh well why should we care about these midterms we're gonna we should we're just gonna get the reward from killing corsensi anyway we don't need to worry about that corsensi is like no you need to fight for your happiness and your future you need to live your life without any regret not passively you need to you need to take control of your lives and you should have fun doing it so, yeah, Assassination Classroom has a lot of great messages for people of any age, really. Honestly, I I feel like I'm going to have a lot of people who may disagree with me on this, but um, I really can't help but think that, like, Assassination Classroom is basically, I mean, it's not exactly new, but it's basically the modern equivalent to, like, GTO, except I feel like Assassination Classroom is executed a lot better. yeah. In terms of the, like, the basic idea of, oh, you have a, you know, this super teacher who is basically trying to make up for the mistakes in his life by basically teaching these, uh, you know, basically teaching the younger generation a thing or two. Like, the, the basic story or whatnot. And I mean, like, especially when you, like, especially if you, like, you know, compare, you know, both, like, Kuro-sensei and Onizuka, where, like, you know, like, and I, I, lo- I love GTO. Like, I think... You know, I really enjoyed reading it all the way through when we recorded the uh, that episode about it like a year ago. But like, you know, thinking back on it, even when I was reading GTO for the first time, like as much as I liked Onizuka as a character, it is really hard to get behind a guy who basically wants to be a high school teacher so he can peep on all the high school girls. And like, that's also funny considering like, you know, Koro Sensei is also perverted too. like... You know, he clearly, you know, he has interest in women, let's say, but like... Yeah, but he doesn't perv on 14-year-old girls. Yeah, exactly. So like Onizuka. He, he at least and, likes women his own age. <laughs> yeah, he's not interested in high school girls like Onizuka either. Yeah. You know? Like, that was Onizuka's goal to be a teacher. He wanted to be a high school teacher so he could get with high school girls. So yeah. it's like, uh, Kora-sensei is a much better role model, for sure. <laughs> Um, so I, I just think it's really interesting in how, like, yeah, like I said, basically GTO and Assassination Classroom kind of deal with the same sort of subject matter, obviously in very different ways. But, like, I really do feel like in terms of, like, the basic idea for the story, like, I feel like Assassination Classroom executes its, I basically executes its story a lot better, personally. Yeah, they share a lot of similar ideas and themes, but yeah, I do think Assassination Classroom, even though it's less grounded than GTO, because GTO, it has ridiculous stuff in it, but it doesn't have like, you know, monsters. It's not about like killing people. Like it's set in a realistic enough environment, but I think Assassination Classroom, even though it has so many fantastical elements, is a more relatable series in many respects in terms of the emotions. And it's also like, I think it's more effective in conveying its messages because uh, GTO often could undermine those in the way of how its characters behave and stuff. And there's still a lot of great stuff about GTO, but I do think Assassination Classroom is more consistent and also 
it manages to succeed in conveying positive messages a lot better than GTO did because in a lot of, yeah, like Onizuka solved a lot of problems with violence. That's <laughs> that's and that's not exactly helpful. But Korosensei never like says tells the students to solve their problems with violence, but just like to like they he teaches them to defend themselves and to you know get themselves out of like violent confrontations. Like that's an important situation with like uh, karma. Is that Korosensei teaches him how to assess a situation that is dangerous and to not pick a fight, which, you know, is a very important, like, lesson that does not happen in GTO because Onizuka does not have that uh, ability at all. No, not at all. And, you know, the more I think about GTO, the more I kind of realize just comparing the two of them again, I feel like there's a clear like a GTO kind of has the same problem that Gintama kind of does a little bit where it's like, you know, both series kind of deal in both comedy and drama. Like, I'm sure some people would disagree on me with this too, but like, I, I feel like looking back on both series, like they deal with both comedy and drama. Well, like, like basically whether like the, I guess it's basically like how well they transition into each other. Isn't always very seamless. Yeah. Because like with both Gintama and GTO, it's like, when both series go from comedy to drama and vice versa, it kind of feels like a switch. Like, oh, well, one minute, oh, GT, uh, Onizuka, oh, man, he, he sure likes them high school girls or whatever. He's such a pervert. You know, it, it kind of feels like at some point it switches from that to like, oh, hey, I care about these students and I want them to do well. And, oh, no, I got to save one of them before they die or whatever. Like, you know, the transition from comedy to drama isn't always very seamless, like I said, it kind of feels like a switch where I feel like Assassination Classroom, I feel like kind of weaves both very seamlessly. Like when Assassination Classroom obviously gets into the meat of the story right around when Kayano makes her big betrayal reveal or whatever you want to call it. And it leads into Kuro-sensei's backstory, which leads into basically the rest of the story. Like if it doesn't feel like the drama comes out of nowhere because we've we've been getting like hints and peaks into Koro Sensei's past and we're kind of trying to already like piece the story together while we're spending time with the characters and while they're still learning very important life lessons even though they spend most of their days being goofy and trying to assassinate their teacher so I mean I think that goes back to what I was saying and I mean I actually agree with you 100% on Gintama but I think I've made my thoughts known on that on Twitter <laughs> <laughs> so I'm surprised I have any Gintama friends left but um yeah uh that goes to what I was saying earlier about Matsui kind of it definitely feels like I haven't seen GTO honestly and I know, um, my, I know Jack is probably going to kill me for that, <laughs> but, um, I haven't actually seen GTO or anything, so I can't comment on it, but it does sound like it shares Gintama's thing where there's kind of a lack of focus. Like, GTO, I don't think Toru Fujisawa planned out that story where it was going to go. Exactly. Yeah, that's what, I, and that's been my major issue with Gintama lately, where it definitely, like, you could tell with Assassination Classroom, the reason why it's so seamless is because Matsui planned everything in advance, so he knows where the story's going, so he can say, alright, rather than, oh, well, I'll just kind of let, it, 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 rather than, 
he's the one if he's if it's if he's the one like walking the dog he's not letting the dog go where it wants he's the one leading okay no we're not going that way he pulls the leash back okay that's how i look at it with like assassination classroom but from what it sounds like with gto and definitely with gintama it definitely feels more like the dog's walking the person <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. and it's like I, I mean, I'm not going to shit on Gintama. This isn't the place for it. And I and I really still do like the series, but it just doesn't feel like there's a focus to it. So, like, a lot of things just sort of happen because the author's like, oh, well, damn, I don't know. Not so much I don't know what I'm going to do, but more just, oh, this is this is the thing I could do. I'm just going to throw it in. I'm just going to do this now. Where it feels like with Assassination Classroom, Matsu is like, okay. Uh, let me see. He's meticulously checking his notes. What chapter am I on? Oh, right. This chapter. This is chapter 70. I already planned exactly what I want to happen. So he's already got the beginning, middle, and end. I mean, I know Sirachi's made jokes that he really doesn't know how to end the series, and sometimes I wonder if he's joking or not. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like the, that's a product of the author being more aware of what they want the series to do that the switch feels a little bit more organic than when it's just clear that the author's just kind of writing off their ass and again i'm not i don't know so i'm not going to accuse anybody or anything but it definitely feels like again matsui was very much in control of where you want the story to go so so it wasn't flipping a switch it was organically shifting into a new, into another, you know, he shifted from a, a, a comedy to a serious situation because he already knew where he was going to go with it. Yeah. I mean, he said in one of his author comments that, like, because of the nature of the series, because of the premise, he knew that it was going to have, like, a very, you know, solemn, melancholic ending. Like, the ending was going to be very emotional. So, I'm sure he had that awareness and that seeped into how he was writing the stories and how he was building the relationship with the characters to Koro-sensei and, like, building how much they loved each other and, like, how close they were, how much they meant to them. He meant to them, He they meant to him. So that that payoff in the final chapter, that emotional climax, would be powerful, would be emotional heart-wrenching, and it would reach the audience and touch their hearts. And in terms of planning, Matsui definitely had the final arc, like the final stretch of chapter, basically the final year's worth of chapters, pretty much planned out pretty meticulously because his author's comment at the back of volume 17 is like i already have a weekly schedule for what i have to do from volume 15 on through the final chapter so my current work is just to create story points based on the list of plot points i've already written up for each week so he had already written out all the plot points he needed for that last year of the series and he was just making his storyboards based on what amount of story he needed to cover in order to reach that ending he wanted. So he planned this out very well and I feel like reading Assassination Classroom like there's nothing in the series, there's no like chapter arc where I can point to and say that isn't needed, you can take that down. Because I feel like everything ultimately really contributed to the whole. Because even arcs that were not necessarily building up the mystery of Coruscant, like his backstory or the villains or like the main main characters, they were still developing like the supporting cast and each member of the supporting cast is an important character because everyone in class 3 is important. 
to Korra Sensei, and they are all, like, in this story together. They're all important. So every moment with them, establishing their characterization and, like, developing them, like, even the smallest moments of humor, the smallest jokes were important in, in like, building up these characters, building up the relationship between them, and, like, ha building towards that emotional payoff. Because you can't have, like, the serious moments. You can't have the dramatic payoff without the levity to counterbalance it. You need, like, the ordinary life, the peaceful life, in order to, like, sell, like, how dramatic, how emotional a change from that is. And Matsui is able to deliver on that extremely well. Yeah. No, I totally agree. No, I agree with that, too. I mean, from whether it's Neuro Assassination Classroom, I think they both did that pretty well. But uh, I think we've been going on pretty long. Um, I mean, unless unless uh, unless we any of us have anything we want to touch on at all real quick before we end the show. Man, it's like you came up with a list of the story arcs for us to structure the discussion around. And in the end, like we touched upon a lot, but I think we could keep going because I definitely have so much more. But like, I, yeah, I think we can. I think that was a pretty good note to end on. I guess one last thing I would say is that, you know, rereading it was incredibly valuable because like there's just so much more I could appreciate from like reading the story beginning to end and like keeping track of all the character development, every character in my mind. Reading it through the volumes was incredibly helpful because they have, like, the class roster to refer to, and they have, like, the character descriptions to refer to, so you can remember, like, supporting characters in Class 3 a lot better. And it's like, by the end of the series, I felt like I knew everyone in that classroom, and that just, like, made the ending all the more effective because, like, I was so happy for each and every one of them. There yeah. were definitely a lot of characters that surprised me also in the reread that were like, oh, man, I really love this character so much. It's so, like, Kataoka, uh, Hayami, those two characters in particular, like, I don't think I oh, necessarily yeah. was invested in them in my, like, when I was reading it weekly, but, like, rereading the series, I was like, oh, man, these two are some of my favorite characters in the series. They're so good. They had a pretty satisfying, short but satisfying, I think, character arc during the uh, um, Osaka vacation arc or whatever you want to call yeah. it. They they had a they. Oh, I forgot to mention. Uh, so I, I as long as we're talking about that arc, I just want to mention on on Mike that uh, uh, I forget his name. Basically, the, the assassin on that island that basically kept eating his gun. Uh, he's one of my favorite <laughs> characters in the entire series. Uh, he's such he's such a Matsui character, like to a T. Like he's a character that really belongs in Nero. <laughs> yeah, and guess who voices him? Guess who voices him? It's Koyasu. Are you, no, you're you're fucking with me. I'm not fucking with you. Well, now I'm gonna have to watch. I'm gonna have to watch. I'm gonna have to watch that. I'm gonna have to watch that episode before I go to bed tonight. Then, um, holy shit, I want to see that. That's great. I, you know, I mean, just as an aside, when I was reading the manga before it got an anime, I was, I mean, Shotayami does an excellent job as um Asano. But I wanted it to be Koyasu. I mean, that would have been great because, like, like he was already such a like Nero esque character, like b blasting math beams at his students. Like, that's like one of the best things in the entire series. I mean, Yako plays one of the girls, the students. So oh, okay. I, I I don't know which one. I'm actually looking through it now, but I know Yako's one of the girls. But I think she's the one that's in the manga, mm. like. 
she breaks the fourth wall often. I forgot her name. Oh, Fuwa, Fuwa. Yeah, that's another one of the characters that I was like, man, on this reread, I really love this character a lot. She's hilarious. Like, her, her insistent shonen manga references, like, she had that great seat moment in the uh, Osaka arc where she was able to deduce this guy was... Uh, like uh, an assassin based on like stuff she's learned from. Oh my Shonen god! Manga. How could I forget to mention the blatant advertising for the new editions of Nero that were out at the time? Yeah, that's yeah. like one of the best <laughs> moments in the entire series. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I just looked it up. Yeah. She. Uh. Fu. It is Fua. Fua is Yako. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> that's perfect. That is perfect. So, that has to have I been. Mean, that had to have been. That on had purpose. to have been on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> that it had to have been. Yeah. So I. I. That's why I. When I remember I was reading the manga, I was just like, Ah, Asuna needs to be played by Koyasu. So I was actually kind of disappointed he wasn't. <sighs> but they got he the guy that eats his guns and stuff. That's Koyasu. But um. Anyway, yeah, I, I think we should probably start wrapping up here soon. There's still so much we could talk about, but, like, I think we've talked about pretty much everything we wanted to talk about for the most part, at least at least on my end. Um, but if you take away anything from this, you should just go read Assassination Classroom. I, I think it's pretty safe to say that we all pretty highly recommend it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Every volume is available from Viz Media. You can go out and seek it at your local bookstore and library. Definitely give it a read. It's well worth your time. Definitely, yes. Definitely. I mean, it's all out now, so there's no, uh, I don't feel like waiting or, no, it's all there. Get right out and get it. But, uh, yeah, go read it. Just just go do it. Um, but um, I think we should just end the show here. I think we had a pretty good episode. Um, oh yeah. So Bomber, thanks for coming on and talking about Assassination Classroom with us. Ah, no problem. And I'm really happy to be invited on. You gotta have me on more often, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah may- maybe we'll have you on next time. I don't know. We'll have to see <laughs> sooner than you think. Uh, but we'll, we'll talk about that real quick off mic. Um, All right. But uh, Bomber, where where can the good people find you? Well, if you're interested in hearing me whine about Gintom and Bomberman, you can find me at Kirobon, that's K-I-I-R-O-B-O-N, on t- and Twitter, which I'm probably on way too much, so you don't have to worry about where, well, I don't want to miss Bomber, well, I'm here all day, probably. <laughs> oh, right, and I guess I should throw, I mean, it's a Shonen Jump show, but I don't care. You can also ch- check me out on Shonen Sunday. Talk about Shonen Sunday, and I averted a crisis today on that. But uh, WSS Talkback, that's T-A-L-K-B-A-C-K dot blogspot dot com, where I talk about Shonen Sunday, where there are also nice, really cool manga about teachers and students. So ha- come in and drop in and give me a comment or something, so I don't feel like I'm wasting my time. <laughs> Yeah, if you want to hear somebody talk about Shonen Sunday and all the wonderful manga that are in that magazine, besides Detective Conan and Silver Spoon, um, then really should go check out Bomber's blog. We'll definitely leave a link to that in the show notes. Um, but uh, Sid, where can the people find you? You can find me at Lumriyasha on Twitter, uh, Annie List, Animation Revelation, wherever you can find a Lum Ramayasha, that's where you can find me. I write reviews for all-comma.com, and I'll definitely have some reviews in the works, so look forward to those as well. 
All right. If you want to find me on Twitter, you could find me, Colton, at SniperKing323. Uh, you can also find my other podcasts, such as Life Lessons, the Gintama Manga Cast, at GintalifeLessons.wordpress.com, as well as One Podcast Prevails at OnePodcastPrevails.com, where uh, my friend Doc and I uh, talk about Detective Conan slash Case Closed. Um, but, you know, just as for all comic and the the podcast or whatnot you can find every episode of manga mavericks over at all-comic.com where we post every episode first you can also follow all comic on facebook.com slash all.comic or on twitter.com slash all comic underscore uh but if you want to follow manga mavericks specifically you want to get all the latest updates on the podcast what we're going to be talking about uh you want to follow us on twitter at manga underscore mavericks as well as follow us on Tumblr at mangamavericks.tumblr.com. You should also subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash mangamavericks, where we basically uh, post excerpts of the podcast, including our big, long discussions like this one on Assassination Classroom, which I'm sure will be up in the future. Um, And you can also email us anything. Uh, What do you think about Assassination Classroom? Uh, What other manga do you read? Uh, What do you want to hear us talk about on the show? Why not? Um, basically email us anything about manga or the podcast in general uh, over to mangamavericks at gmail.com but the most important thing guys is that you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, the artist formerly known as iTunes um, so just you know, leave us a rating, a review whatever you feel like, let us know how you like the show, it really helps our visibility on, uh, on there and uh, helps our podcast grow so uh, please do that if you wish to but um, yeah again special thanks to Bomber for coming on and uh Yeah, this has been episode 50 of the podcast. Uh, And we will see you guys next time for episode 51. Bye, guys. Sayonara. Good night. Bye-bye.